History teaches us that civilization developed in four major places. The Nile, the Indus, the Tigris-Euphrates, and the Yangtze. These, ha- these places have one important thing in common, which you probably are aware of. They're all rivers. This is where civilization started, and this is no accident. Rivers are life-giving. They provide fresh water, which, of course, is the most vital thing to life. Uh, things like trade and windmills and irrigation for crops. All sorts of very important things that you can't really exist without. Now, it may sound like a list of life-giving things, but if you look at it in a different point of view, it's a list of things that uh, a conqueror would want to acquire. It's like a, a wish list, uh, the, the type that could almost make a conqueror or the type of person who wants to wield power. It would make them salivate, all these things. Not only you, someone like you and I might look at this as a place where life can develop and grow strong, but someone with power on their mind would look at it as a place where, wow, you know, I can get a lot of soldiers out of this. <laughs> I can get a lot of power out of this. Uh, anyone who wants to wield power, of course, is going to be tempted by the Riverlands and Westeros because they're in the center of things and they're very powerful uh, because of all these life-giving properties. But as we'll see, the greater temptation, the greater the power, the greater the temptation is to take it. But it's one thing to take power; it's quite another thing to hold it. And hello, welcome again to another episode of the History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to the A Song of Ice and Fire book series by George R. R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones on HBO. This is going to be a spoiler-free episode, so don't worry, we're not going to drop any spoilers. So if you've actually read Storm of Swords, and or if you're, you know, watched up to including season three, you won't be spoiled. So, uh, the things to note, we're talking about the Riverlands of Westeros. They are literally, quite literally, in the center of the continent. They share a border with five out of the seven kingdoms. The exceptions, of course, being Dorm, Dorne and the Stormlands. But it is also including, was now referred to as the Crownlands. So, this is pretty much certain... Uh, a certain part of this to why the Riverlands are not considered a separate kingdom in the, in the current times of the books and the story. And that, uh, that as well as the fact that the time uh, where Aegon conquered Westeros, the Riverlands were controlled by the Iron Islands, so they were sort of already subjugated. Um, also, just to add a bit of um, a, a note to what Steve had said about the Stormlands not bordering <clears throat> the Riverlands, which is kind of uh, ironic because we'll see a bit later that despite that, the Stormlands did manage to conquer the Riverlands at one point, so even not sharing a border with them wasn't enough to uh, keep them out of trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, in general, the status of the Riverlands as a region or a kingdom, it's really not all that straightforward. Uh, it's it's less, less of a kingdom in other ways, too. Um, it's rarely been truly united um, between the, the different cultures. They're culturally distinct. Uh, they're distinct in ways that uh, uh, George has shown us for other places. Right, like in the north we've got, you know, the, the old gods and there's northern traditions. And in the south you've got certain traditions like tournaments and, and chivalry. Uh, the, the Riverlands is more of a hodgepodge. Um, there's, it's more of a melting pot, so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have its own identity as much. And that may make it seem less important, but we're going to show you throughout this episode and the next two, 
as it turns out, that there's actually quite a bit to say here. And, of course, being in the middle means there's lots of action and lots of drama and lots of things happening. So that's that gives us lots to talk about. Uh, with that in mind, <clears throat> we had, as some of you may know, we tried to record this episode a little while ago. We had some technical problems, and we had to start it over. But throughout that process... We learned a couple of new things, a couple of new things to add to the notes, which is nice. But we also discovered that we just had so much material that nor our normal pattern of doing a history episode uh, paired up with a plots episode where we do spoilers and or non-spoilers and then we do spoilers isn't quite going to fit on this one because we actually have so much material that we're actually going to have three episodes. So two non-spoiler episodes... And then a spoiler episode later. This episode is going to take us through, or up to and including uh, Aegon's conquest. We're not really going to, we're not going to get past that too much. We're going to get up to about the time of when he finished conquering, well, the Riverlands. Maybe not the Hall of Westeros. And then in part two, we'll go ahead and start dealing with uh, more modern times, the past 300 years. And then with the spoiler episode, we'll talk about... At the what where things are at the end of a dance with dragons with the Riverlands and their appropriate characters, etc. So, without any further ado, let's get into it. The centralized location of the Riverlands, which we've already uh, been harping on quite a bit in this early point, it means that they are more likely to be drawn into conflicts. Quite obviously, uh, we'll see uh, throughout this episode, especially when multi-kingdom conflicts occur. The Riverlands are literally quite often caught up right in the middle of it. There's, uh, you know, if you have two factions going at it and the Riverlands are in the middle, well, of course they're going to be caught up in it. Uh, lords of the Riverlands, more so than lords of other areas, uh, have to bow to political expediency and factors that they may not like to bow to due to the fact that they're in the middle. They, they can't just... Uh, let's take the North as a great example of something that's more isolated. The North... Has, av- has managed to av- uh, stay out of a lot of conflicts that have swept throughout Westeros because they're way up in the north. They can, they, they, you know, they're not necessarily going to be caught up in things that happen in the middle. Yeah, well, they're, they're almost more isolated, I would say. Right. Um, as opposed to the other, other regions. Uh, there's, there's all these natural borders that, that exist in other places that, don't, that the Riverlands don't really have. Um, so... What, we'll, what we're going to be getting into is situations where sometimes a lord in the Riverlands doesn't has to decide what he's going to do, what side to take, partly based on who his neighbors are. Uh, when you're isolated, you have a lot more leeway as to who, what side you're going to fight for. But if you're, let's say you would like to side with, say, Team A, but Team B... All his Team B's friends are your neighbors. Well, it might not be so smart to uh, raise your banners to fight for a cause that all your neighbors are fighting against. Yeah. Uh, that's going to happen. That could happen anywhere, but it's more likely to happen in the Riverlands. And it's more of a problem for the Riverlords because, as we'll see, a lot of their castles and keeps, really, despite rivers being a nice natural border sometimes, there's really not much else. They don't have a lot of, you know, they don't have mountains and and a lot of other natural defenses that you see associated with uh, being fortresses being built as a part of. So, um, so we're going to start, we're going to talk about a lot of the important wars, uh, a lot of the wars throughout Westeros, all things that you're familiar with. Uh, they're going to have touched on the Riverlands. It's, it's pretty rare that a large-scale war doesn't affect the Riverlands, so they're, they're, we're going to, we're going to 
touch on most every historical period and have something to say about how the Riverlands got involved. Some of these will be very familiar and recent, and some of them uh, maybe not so much, but we'll make them familiar and uh, as we go through this. <laughs> yeah, so, um, no, no, of course, leaving no stone unturned, we're going to do our usual thing, and we're going to start with the ancient history of the Riverlands. So we're going to be moving forward through several key time periods until we, you know, eventually arrive to the more familiar current times, um, which will eventually, you know, include the discussion of the War of the Five Kings, Robert's Rebellion, etc. Uh, but before we get into the history, we're going to set the stage a little bit with the geography so you can get an idea of what is what and where is where. And trust me, there are a lot of names. Especially if you're afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And places also that get thrown around that, you know, uh, we're, we're here to try to help make sense of everything. So those are a few key features that we wanted to touch on. So the Riverlands pretty much go as far north as a swamp area of the neck. Um, as, you, as you know, if you look at the map, it's that skinny part of Westeros. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> a good so, way to call it. Yeah, and uh, it's east up. Uh, up through the King's Road, um, south to the Blackwater Rush, west to Ironman's Bay, um, and of course the hills of Westerlands. So at a glance, it might appear that the Riverlands have defensible borders, but in reality, they can only defend their northern borders easily enough. Right, because of the bogs and the swamps there that make it pretty difficult for any army uh, of any size to manipulate uh, or to get around or to deal with in general. Um, but but the Riverlands are interesting because despite all this, they have a lot of strategic value, as we talked about. We talked about the life-giving aspects that those things have value, all the trade and the, the trade goods and, the, and the, 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 frankly, the, just the food. The food. I mean, there's just a ton of crops and fishing and that comes out of there. Um, but the, the, but the, with the what thing with Steve was saying about the, the difficulty in defending it, uh, you look to the west and there's mountains. But And so you'd think, well, those mountains, maybe that's defensible. But no, because the Lannisters and the Westermen control those mountains. Uh, and, of course, going to the east, you see mountains again. You see the Vale. But the Vale controls those mountains, too. So the, the Riverlands is kind of caught in the middle of that. Um, in fact, there's, there are mountain fortresses leading into each of those areas. You've got the, the Bloody Gate to the east. Uh, of course, uh, ironically enough... A Riverlander was holding the title of Knight of the Gate for quite a while until the events of the books. That would be Brendan Blackfish Tully. And to the west, there is a similar fortress called the Golden Tooth, which sort of guards the, the passage into the Westerlands there. And if, if the Golden Tooth sounds familiar, um, this is, of course, jumping pretty far ahead, but it's relevant to the discussion now, so we'll throw it out there. Rob... Uh, Rob's direwolf Grey Wind is how they got around the Golden Tooth. Remember that Rob had a, led a sneak attack on a new Lannister army that was forming near Lannisport after the disaster at the Battle of Whispering Wood. A disaster if you're a Lannister and a, a glorious victory if you're a Stark or a Riverlander. But, <laughs> yeah, if you're Jamie, it's not such a good thing. But, um... So that so that it was a very it was a surprise. The reason that Stafford Lannister had not set guards, and the reason that Rob was able to sneak up on that army was because it was deep in Lannister territory, and they thought, well, there's no way that if if they could have if they if they were in our territory, we'd have heard about it. There's no way they got past the Golden Tooth without a fight or any word reaching. Well, there you go. They did just that. So 
Uh, so yeah, so like I said, the the at the start of Game of Thrones, Brendan Blackfish Tully is the Knight of the Bloody Gate. We'll get into that later and some of the more details, but we're gonna get not get too far uh, out of the out of our um, focus right here, which is the geography. So Steve's gonna talk about the South a little bit. Just to mention, I'm really really digging the actor playing the Blackfish. Yeah, he, he's a tough guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's really pulling it off very well. I think you know he's. Definitely pushing Ed Muir around like he did in the book, so I'm I'm completely happy. You know, a lot of a lot of people complain. It's funny because a lot of people are complaining that he's not that he's been made to be too aggressive and and, and rough in the in the show, and he's like that in the book. He talks he about is. he talks about flaying Ed Muir alive after Ed Muir uh, after Ed Muir is bragging about his victory at the Stone Mill, and they're nice to him. They didn't want him to, to like embarrass him in front of his own people, but as soon as all the people are gone, Ed uh, Blackfish is like. I would have flayed you alive if I were the king. So I don't know. I think pe- I think people are making too much out of him turning him into a thug. I think he he kind of has that mentality. Not that he's a thug, but he is an aggressive, kind of blunt, uh, says what's on his mind kind of guy. Yeah, he's very direct and very you know straight to the point. Um, I would say even more so than Stannis, and you know Stannis is a pretty. <laughs> Stannis you know, is by the rules. Stannis is blunt, but he's also really sarcastic. Um, yeah. Although, <laughs> Uh, there's a little bit of we see a little bit of sarcasm, sarcasm from Blackfish later, but Stannis is actually one of the most sarcastic characters in the entire series. He's up there with the Lannisters, who are about as sarcastic as it gets. <laughs> Tyrion, yeah, Jamie, even Tywin, all those guys are really sarcastic. So, oh yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I love Charles Dance uh, playing uh, uh, Tywin. I think he's uh, he's possibly the best actor in the show for this season. I mean, going season to season. I have a, it's difficult to pick one for the whole show because people are more in and out. Maybe Tyrion would be the best for the whole show because he's the only one that's really in it the whole time, all three seasons. Because um, obviously Charles Dance is hardly in season one and et cetera. So, yeah. Anyway. Came like, what, midway season two? But anyway, let's right. go back to. Yeah, but we are. We're getting on a tangent, aren't we? It always, this always yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah. All right. So back, back, to, back to the geography and stuff. Um, so. With regards to the Riverlands, the South is is really just open for anything to happen. Yeah, just, just flat um, plains, just empty fields yeah. of farms. There's not a lot of hills or mountains. It's just yeah, <laughs> no real natural borders other than you know rivers. Um, of course, uh, possibly the worst thing we have on one of their borders is uh, you know the Ironborn. <laughs> um, yeah, the Ironborn actually played a huge role and a big factor in the history of the Riverlands. Um, and they're they're a major factor as to why we describe their history here as being quite bloody. Yeah, in fact, the castle of Seaguard uh, is named so because it is intended to guard against sea incursions from well the Ironborn. Huh, who else? Yeah. So, and that's been that castle's been there a while, and the Ironborn have been a problem for thousands of years, and they're not going away anytime soon, I don't suppose. So, uh, yeah, they're. They're pretty. They're pretty proud. Yeah, uh, they're pretty proud, pretty dangerous, and very, very stubborn. So, mm, oh yeah. The the main feature of the Riverlands, of course, is the rivers. That's obvious based on the name. The largest rivers combine and form a large fork of sorts, which is called the Trident. There's also the Dairy, the Green Apple, the Big and Little Willow, Ripple Down Rill, the Maiden. Uh, Etc. There's just so many, but we're not gonna. We don't really need to get into all these names. We just wanted to throw them out there to make them familiar. 
But the Trident is a river system, and that's the one we're going to focus on. It's the red, green, and blue forks, as well as the Tumblestone, which is a pretty major river, but that, that, is, uh, that hooks into the red fork uh, more uh, to the east, or rather to the west. Um, then it, it, it all comes together near the Bay of Crabs and the City of Salt Pans, which empties out um, into the Narrow Sea eventually. And that's about where the Riverlands ends. Uh, the Blackwater Rush, which is another name that you all are probably familiar with. You certainly are familiar with Blackwater Bay, where the famous battle was fought. Where Blackwater, Well, of course, Blackwater Bay has to come from somewhere, and it comes from the Blackwater Rush. The Blackwater Rush, as Steve said, is the southern border of the Riverlands. And uh, like it says, it empties out. Of course, it empties into Blackwater Bay. Yep, that's so the ground is a trident. Um, it actually takes two weeks to ride from the mouth of the trident to King's Landing. Um, so that, that's that's a that's a decent little hike uh, for yeah. people, you know, riding horses and marching and whatnot. <laughs> uh, so the Green Fork runs northwest parallel to the King's Road, um, which is actually to the east, uh, just a little ways off. The Green Fork's a really serious natural border. It's probably the most difficult of the three rivers to uh, manage, as far especially if you're a guy with an army. <laughs> Uh, it's there's really no way to cross it uh, except near the the end of it where it, where it all uh, it meets with the other rivers at a place called a little bit north of that is a place called the Ruby Ford, which is where you can where where you, is one place you can cross. But uh, you t- to cross other than the Ruby Ford, you have to go all the way north to the Twins, which is somewhat close to where the Green Fork starts. Um, so there's this huge swath of the Green Fork where there's no crossing except for at the, uh, you know, no crossing at all. So this is part of why the twins are so powerful. And wh- and part of why it was such an obstacle for Rob, which uh, at the beginning of, of the, the outbreak of hostilities, uh, it gives a, goes a bit to explain why he split his forces um, and why he was able to do some of the things that he did with manipulating Tywin and uh, not just manipulating Tywin, but ni- manipulating Tywin's expectations of how he would proceed. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's basically only two ways. Uh, well, there's two ways basically to cross the Green Fork, uh, and they're far north at the Twins, or near the you know or near the Ruby Ford. Um, so this explains a lot of as to why Rob actually needed uh, Walter Frey and mm-hmm. his bridge. Why he uh, gave up so, so much for it? Yeah. Oh yeah, he gave. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he willing to marry himself off. As well as Arya. Mm-hmm. Taking a squire <laughs> and all these other oh, yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a huge, huge price for him. So, with these two... All right, so now the Ruby Ford, um, it gets its name um, from when when Robert Baratheon killed Rhaegar. Rhaegar's uh, armor was so ornate, it had a number of rubies actually embedded in the army. And when... Robert supposedly hit him with his war hammer that knocked these rubies loose. And supposedly, there are still rubies in the ford as we speak. Yeah, there's apparently six of them have washed up in a monastery down uh, downstream from the trident, from the ruby ford, from the green ford. And, of course, it's a monastery. They're, they're worshippers of the seven. They're waiting on the seventh one. <laughs> That's, that'll be some sort of com- completed symbology for them. I suppose it's 
the stranger Ruby would be the one that's missing at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that would make sense. But so it's possible that those same rubies are the ones that came from Rhaegar. I don't suppose there's a lot of different rubies that have fallen into that river. <laughs> yeah, that's not something you're going to give up that easy. It's not like pennies that you throw in for a wish. There. No, no, not at all. Very rich yeah, people I, throw I rubies into rivers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I imagine rubies have a pretty much a similar value as to what we have in our real world. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 nice looking, aren't they? <laughs> So the center part of the trident is the Blue Fork, um, and it also runs northwest, heading up river. Um, and this is where we find Fair Market and Old Stones, uh, two other cities. And of course, farther north up is the city of Seaguard. Right on. Um, south of the Blue Fork is the Whispering Wood, which we mentioned a minute ago. That's where Rob and Blackfish engineered the slaughter of the Lannister army. Um, after that battle, of course, they rode hard. And relieved the siege of River Run. I remember this was an all-mounted army, so they were able. That's when I say rode hard. I mean literally the whole army went straight for River Run, and they were trying to get there quickly because they didn't want anyone to know that they were coming. Um, and because if word if if Jamie knew that they were coming, all they lost, they lose the element of surprise. So that was pretty important. Yeah. And as we know, yeah, it's strategic. Yeah, strategically speaking, that, I mean, that makes total sense that you would want to do the surprise attack. Yeah. So that's why they did ride so hard. Partly, and of course, it was hugely important to maintain the element of surprise, not only because surprise gives them an advantage, but because, frankly, they were outnumbered. They, if, if Jamie was prepared and ready for them and, and knew they were coming, they'd have been, it would have been about 8,000 men against... I don't. I don't have the numbers in front of like me. Yeah, a huge number. Like I think so. So they were outnumbered about two and a half to one. So that's that's pretty bad. So yeah. they made the most of it, and uh, that's part of why Rob got such a great reputation as a military commander because of these. Uh, he kept winning when he was outnumbered and yeah. uh, making all kinds of surprise attacks, things like that. So anyway, um, we're on to the Red Fork now. Yep. Uh, yeah. Well, the Red Fork. Um, that one actually runs west for a while. Um, then it turns south where it meets another large river, the Tumblestone. So where these two meet is very important because that is River Run, home of the Tullys. That is a very important factor. Um, strategically speaking, it's probably the easiestly defended area of the Riverlands altogether. Yeah, the castle itself is able to surround itself by water by manipulation of the waters around it. They have gates and they can control that. So they can basically surround themselves with a moat that's not really a moat so much as an actual river. <laughs> that's a lot better yeah. than a moat because a moat just sits there. moat doesn't have a current. <laughs> yeah, this one, yeah, this one actually flows. So, so it would be difficult to, like, say, move cavalry across. Yeah. Now, um, so we'll get... Unlike the Green Fork... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was saying, unlike the Green Fork, though, uh, the Red Fork has several forts. Um, and so there are multiple ways to get across it. Right. Uh, it's wide. It's a really wide river, and it's really slow, very slow moving. So that whole bit about mm. the current, maybe not so relevant as it could be, but still, a current is better than no current as far as defense goes. Um, now this is... Um, I, imagine, I imagine still marching an army of horses across <laughs> would still be difficult. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so... We're told that galleys of 18 oars, now that's 18 oars per side, uh, probably two men wow. per oar, uh, maybe just one, but possibly two, that galleys of this size are, can exist on the Red Fork. So these aren't, these wow. aren't little skiffs and river boats. These are major, you know, like pretty sizable boats that are they're going up and down this river. So 
If you remember the scene... Which means it's pretty big. Yeah. If you remember the scene where Brienne and Jamie and Sir Cleos are fleeing down the river in that skiff, and, and Brienne performs some heroism there by climbing that cliff and dropping rocks on that ship, you'll remember that that ship, that river galley, had rowers. Um, Brienne's one of the the rocks that Brienne drops, or actually she drops that one large rock that breaks in two. You hear about uh, a, one of the rowers having his leg broken by that rock and it punching straight through the bottom of the hull. So uh, pretty pretty important, um, pretty major. It's not just this is this is not a small river is kind of the point we're trying to get across here. And the other the other the other forks of the uh, are similar in that size. So anyway. Um, so, and of course, with Fords, Steve mentioned that there are lots of ways across uh, on, the, on the Ruby, on the, sorry, on the Red Fork. Kind of easy to get the Red Fork and the Ruby Ford confused there, but the, they're not. It's, they're not very that similar. So, Fords are inconsistent. A, a Ford that's easily crossable one day by horses and men and even carts, potentially, might be uh, a, something that's deadly a day later or, or even a few hours later depending on rainfall or other you know environmental factors and it can change suddenly uh, there's plenty of stories in the real world of a large army crossing a major river getting split in half by a change in the river's current and that being disastrous for that army because maybe all their horses are on one side or maybe their supplies are on one side. And then another army approaches and they're just all disorganized and, and they get slaughtered or pushed into the river and drowned and yeah, all kinds of horrible things. But <laughs> Yeah. I remember, I, I remember a specific story, actually, um, where this actually happened, I believe it was to, it was somewhere in South America. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the Aztecs or whatnot, uh, but there was a major army that actually was trying to cross the Amazon, mm. and that didn't go so well <laughs> for pretty much anybody. I can't imagine an army crossing the Amazon. Now that is a river. Woo. <laughs> that is yeah, a massive river. It's deep. It's deep. I mean, it's like trying to cross the Mississippi. Yeah, here. yeah. I mean, I, I know driving across the. Um, if you've ever driven across the United States. Yeah. On the ten, on the ten freeway, the ten freeway crosses the Mississippi, and it literally takes half an hour to cross that. <laughs> it just blows your mind how large it is. Huh? <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's just it's like I, I can't imagine trying to take an army on horseback and carriages, supply wagons, and whatnot. Considering across something that massive, yeah. it, would, it would be. <clears throat> I mean. I mean, it would just be mind-boggling to try to figure out the logistics. And that's that. a good thing to, to segue into just for a minute. Um, it's as far as armies, it's there's there's a there can it can be very misleading when you hear about the size of an army because let's say you hear about let's say Rob's army that he split at the Twins. Now we're going to go with the book numbers yeah. and not the show numbers where he had eight thousand horse that went west to relieve River Run and, and uh, perpetrate the ambush on Jamie. 12,000 foot mm. went south. Now, the twelve, the 8,000 horse was pr- was pretty much just that, 8,000 horse. With, you know, they had squires and knights and, and free riders, etc. But the 12,000 foot <clears throat> had baggage trains and camp followers. Yeah. And, you know, camp followers means all kinds of things. People that just try to come to the army and go, hey, I can do something for you. 
pay me. I can do work for yeah. the army. They're people that are just it's like day laborers showing up, going, "Hey, yeah. let me clean armor or let me help prepare food or cook." Exactly. Or whatever. Yeah. It's just people that showing up needing work. Now that kind of thing isn't going to happen and with then, the army that's on horse because they're moving around too fast, and the servants don't have horses of their own yeah. to keep up. And well, also the foot army has you know they're they're the ones carrying the supply wagons and carriages and whatnot. So that, that makes it even that much more difficult for uh, for maneuver. Right, right. So, so that was part of what Rob's advantage was in the West. What he was hoping to gain was to to draw Tywin's army over there and then to just drive Tywin crazy by outmaneuvering him because his army was is was was going to be just massively more maneuverable than Tywin's mixed force of foot and horse and supplies, etc. So. Anyway, but once again, we're getting a little bit on tangent. But anyway, but it's so much fun. We can't help ourselves. And we know you guys mostly mostly uh, yeah. enjoy our tangents. <laughs> so let's get back to the Riverlands, uh, our overview here. We've got the Riverlands, a lot of you might not realize this, they're number two in population. Um, I, uh, it occurred to me that considering all the massive devastation of the Riverlands during the War of the Five Kings, that maybe they temporarily dropped out of the number two spot because there's just so much death. That has occurred there, but uh, probably not. It probably isn't enough, that much death, especially considering other regions had a lot of death to deal with as well. But, you know, in times of peace, for certain, they're number two as far as population. Population. Um, now, river, river travel, of course, is a huge thing as far as trade goes as well. And, of course, all the rivers really enable that. So there's a lot of trade in the Riverlands, there's a lot of, which means a lot of taxes. So that's really good for the river lords. That's something that makes them happy. So a lot of that shuts down during the war. So they have a lot of incentive to not be in war. <laughs> uh, of course, yeah. there's plenty of other incentives for that too. But that's one that's even bigger for them. Uh, trade is 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 always going to be a factor all around uh, the the Seven Kingdoms. But it's going to be a bigger deal in places where it's easier to perform. Consider trading in the in the deep north. Where they all they have is like crappy goat tracks and and you know roads that really aren't roads. They're just like I said, they're just tracks. They're just worn by people going back and forth. So it's just uh, it's a totally different scenario. So, but one thing is interesting though. Despite all this extra population, there are no cities in the Riverlands. That may sound surprising, but really, but yeah. really, there's only five cities true cities in all of Westeros. Um, just real yeah. quick, I'll list them out. They're King's Landing, Old Town, Lannisport, White Harbor, and Gulltown. So, there you go. Um, but there are a lot of towns that are fairly sizable. Um, the kind of towns that aren't necessarily going to show up on a map, but they're just all over the place. Uh, market towns, holdfasts, little villages... And the reason there are so many is once again because the Riverlands is fertile, and there's a lot of there's enough food to support this kind of population. It's it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those towns: Fair Market, uh, Lord Haraway's Town, Saltpans, Maidenpool, the Stony Sept. These are these names Stony are Sept. probably familiar. You may not remember where you've heard them, but yeah. they popped up in the books and in the show. So we'll get to some specifics of those mm -hmm. later as they fit into the narrative. Um, some major castles, of course. River Run, obviously. Seaguard, we talked about that. Heron Hall, that's going to be a fun one to talk about. Oh, um, yeah, Stonehenge, which is the seat of House Bracken. Raven Tree Hall for House Blackwood. And the twins, of course, House Frey. Um, 
And not all of those have been there for a long time. Some of those date back as far back as, as we have any information on, but some of them are more recent, so we'll get into that as well. Um, as far back as the Dawn Age is where we're going to get started, um, which oh, is, yeah. you know, we're talking about the first men and the children of the forest when you get, go that far back. During the Dawn Age, of course, there was no such thing as the Riverlands. It was, there wasn't even a Seven Kingdoms, it was just a continent, and... There wasn't. There certainly wasn't a set of borders to define these things, uh, but w- but there were. Mm. You know, there was some sense of there were some things that we can point to that that lead you know, led to uh, things in the future that become more interesting. Uh, so during the Dawn Age, of course, the children of the forest waged war with the first men, and a big part of why that war was so bad and so bloody was because the first men were cutting down werewoods. We're cutting down trees in general, but in particular, werewoods were something that was really offensive to the, uh, to the, to the children of the, of the forest. Now, if you want to get an idea of just how offensive yeah. it is, think about the fact that these trees are sacred to the children of the forest. And it seems to go a bit farther than that. They're not just sacred. Um, it, it, you kind of consider... I like to, to make this comparison. Burning down a werewood is roughly the equivalent of burning down a sept and a library at the same time while the septon and the librarian are in it. So it's pretty bad. <laughs> uh, well, I, I would actually equate it to being uh, equivalent to, say, um, uh, if you were, I mean, I mean, if you're a Christian, um, they're burning down your cross and your church at the same there time. There you go. I, I completely agree. Or, with yeah, with the with the yeah, priest uh, still in the church, I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, with the priest still in the church. So yeah, that that would be that. That's offensive. just really bad. So you got to understand, and we're going to eventually do an episode on on the religion, and that's going to be a fun one, and it's going to get into some of that. Ooh, that's going to be and interesting. We're going to get into why certain things are so important to certain cultures. Um, so we just wanted to touch on how important that is because this this theme of werewoods in the Riverlands is going to come up again uh, throughout some of our our, our discussions today. As well as in the future episodes, but so this is not just a war; it's also an existential crisis. The children of the forest are not only were are not only fighting um, against an, an enemy that is out to conquer them, but it's it sort of they were out to ex- not only conquer them but sort of exterminate them and destroy their religion and their history all at the same time. So you can understand why it was just and, so bloody. And historically speaking, um, in real world aspects, it's almost as bad as say. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would. Ask, that's. What I, I think it's very similar. To. There's a lot of parallels there, um, and I think it's it's funny the Crusader uh, comparison is going to come back. I have prepared a few notes on how the Crusade, uh, the the Crusade, not well, not the Crusade specifically, but uh, an uh, an order related to the Crusaders, which is the Knights Templar. Although there's a lot. The Knights Templar have a lot in common with the Faith Militant, which we'll get into a bit later. Uh, we yeah, we actually won't touch on that until the beginning of part two of this Riverland series. So uh, look out for that later. But anyway, um, there was a pact signed uh, after who knows how much fighting. Of course, none of this was ever written down until much later. So this is all conjecture and what George tells us. <laughs> But <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But part of the peace deal was that no more werewoods would get cut down. And this pact was signed in a very interesting place, something that I'd really like to hear more about, called the Isle of Faces. 
Yeah, the Isle of Faces. Um, that's pretty much in the center of this massive lake. And if I'm not mistaken, it's the biggest lake I think in so. Westeros. I think so, yeah. And, yeah, it's in the Riverlands. And it's known as the God's Eye. And this is basically because the lake is shaped, you know, in this almost circular fashion. And it's got this singular big island in the center of it. So it's known as yeah, the Yeah, it kind of looks like a pupil, that little middle thing, yeah. All those, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so Harrenhal... Um, a very important place that we've discussed before, and we'll, we'll definitely be touching on it again. Um, it's on the North Shore right now. Um, but back then, there wasn't anything like that. Uh, Harrenhal's only about 300 years old. So the lake marks the end of the Riverlands in the southwest, and as to the point where things, you know, where the story picks up in the right. series. So when the pact was signed, every werewood had a face carved into it. That, that of course makes it a heart tree. Well, that's one of the things that makes it a heart tree. Um, in the Order of the Green Men was founded, and apparently that order is still there. I mean, we don't really know a lot about what the Green Men are. Uh, their task is to guard these yeah. werewolves, and I suppose they've done a good job of it. Um, we don't really know a whole lot about the Green Yeah, they're still, still there. The, apparently those werewolves are still there, and we have a, we have a note about um, a certain Kranach man visiting that that Isle of Faces, and maybe we'll hear him. Maybe if he'll maybe he'll tell us about it later. I don't know. Hopefully, come on, George, give us more. We want to know. Maybe I, th- I, I think for yeah, sure right. that World of Ice and Fire book that's coming out, unfortunately, has been delayed for a year. It was going to be out this October. It won't be out till October 2014. Um, I bet we'll. Yeah, I bet we'll hear about it a little more in there, though. Hopefully, George. <laughs> So, yeah, so the first men basically had stopped cutting down these weirwoods. Um, so for a long time, these trees were pretty much untouched. Um, but now there's only just a few left in the south and none in the groups. The one exception to this is the Isle of Faces. So the question is... Well, if we jump ahead, uh, jump ahead a bit to the Andal invasion, they didn't sign any sort of pact at all. They... They, they, of course, that pact was with the first men and the uh, children of the forest. So, this confusion... Let me clear up a bit of confusion about God's Wood, Werewoods, and uh, Heart Trees, just in case none of that makes any sense. A God's Wood is uh, a grove of... a stand of trees, a grove of trees. It can be pretty large. It can be several acres. It's, li- it's usually in a castle. Sometimes it's outside the castle. Um, now, a heart nice. tree is the centerpiece of a God's Wood. Uh, it doesn't have to be a werewood. It usually is, and I think originally the concept was a werewood, but now that some, so many of the werewoods in the South were cut down, they just, not all the gods would have werewoods. So, on a heart tree, it typically has a face carved into it. Um, if it's a, I'm not entirely clear on if, I believe all werewoods with carved faces are considered heart trees. And a heart tree that's in the center of a godswood uh, is well, a tree that's in the center of a godswood is always a heart tree as well. But I'm not sure if a, if a non werewood has to have a face to be considered a godswood. I'm not, some of that maybe needs a little more explanation. But wow. hey, this is an episode on the Riverlands, not on godswood. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so the the Andals didn't observe the pact with the, the first men and the children of the forest had. So they were they had no compunctions about cutting down werewoods. And from their point of view, they're just big white trees that look kind of weird and maybe look kind of creepy and actually they provide some pretty darn good wood so from their point of view maybe uh it's just kind of sensible to cut these things down but it's from another point of view it was kind of evil (laughs) so 
one good example of what it looks like now. What, what the the destruction of Weirwoods causes, and and what it um, what that says in current times. We'll go with the example at High Heart. Now, High Heart. If you want, if you've only watched the show, you're not going to see High Heart. It doesn't appear. Uh, it appears that they're going to have skipped that scene. It didn't. It does not. Uh, it's something that happens a lot in the show. They skip these kind of scenes. These sort of prophetic, um, darker kind of predictive scenes. They, yeah. The one of the ones they didn't skip was the House of the Undying, but they kind of cut out a lot of it. So, some of these things are kind of hard to pull oh, yeah. off on TV. I don't really blame them. But anyway, the story of High Heart is that it's this large hill, and the way they describe it is it really sounds more like a mountain to me, but, you know, that's fine. <laughs> Call it what they want. So, it's so, it's, it's, there's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of empty space around it. You can really, if you're on High Heart, if you're, if you've climbed up it a bit, you can see... Uh, all around, you can see this flat land everywhere. So you, it, it was said to be a place of safety. Um, that's how the children of the forest saw it. It, it, it has thirty-one weirwood stumps, and these were, and these weirwood stumps wow. are so big that a child could sleep on the stump as if it were a bed, and he wouldn't, you know, he would fit on there. So these are really, these were really, really wow. old trees that were cut down, and they were cut down by yeah. an Andal king named Ereg the Kinslayer. So, so this guy cut down. He said he's a kinslayer, and he cut down a weirwood grove. This guy's <laughs> great guy. Um, yeah, but yeah. the small folk won't go to High Heart. It's a shunned place because of apparently they say that this Andal king, the, the he slew some children of the forest that were living there at this time when he cut down those weirwoods, and the ghosts of these children. Are still there, which is kind of a, which is kind of backwards in a sense. It's, it sounds like a, it's a really, it's a place that small folks shun. Yet also, it's thought of this place, it's thought of as a place of protection and safety. When Ar- when Arya's there, she she says, "Wow!" She she realizes, like, yeah, it does seem safe up here. If an army was coming, they would, you would see them coming from miles and miles away. Uh, she, she says it's so high that the clouds, you can see, you know, it's above the clouds at some point, which really makes it sound more like a mountain to me. But hey, what, you know, whatever. It, yeah, it sounds like a mountain to me too. <laughs> so. Uh, and there's this funny old dwarf woman there. That there's there's some weird. She and she, she ha, she knows things she shouldn't. She's got some. Maybe she's got some dreams that. <laughs> yeah. She's got predictive powers, and she can. She's got visions, maybe. And there's a connection with her to, Aegon the Fifth and his son, the Prince of Dragonflies, Prince Duncan the Small. Oh lord. Uh, so just as a teaser, that's a connection point there, and she might even be. Yep. Some people think that she's got children of the forest blood in her um, because of her eye, the way her oh. eyes look and these weird predictive power she has and the fact that she seems like she's... There's some evidence that she's really, really old. I mean, she's. Pro- it seems like she's probably... She could easily be over 100 years old and that just is strange. Wow. <laughs> Something supernatural going on there. Yeah, so, so I don't know what the deal with that is, but... That's something we'd we'd love to get more explanation on. So, we'll see what happens with that later. Maybe if it comes back. But so during this time, also in general, remember we're still dealing with the Dawn Age here. The first human settlements were were undoubtedly built, and of course, a lot of these almost certainly had to be around the Riverlands because those were some of the choicest spots with all these great rivers and everything. Yeah. So 
And at the time, there wouldn't have been a lot of people to fight over these choice spots. It was kind of like a free-for-all. Like, hey, pick out the... It's, it's humanity's new to Westeros. Just pick grab all the, the, the great spots. Uh, so a lot of that is just speculation. Yep. Um, like, like most things in the Dawn Age are, we're, we're kind of grasping at straws and putting, putting pieces together and hoping they fit and, and making sense of it. But it's a lot of fun to do. But, but let's move on to yeah. the Age of Heroes. Okay, well, on the Age of Heroes, the Riverlands were actually a, a, a basically, it was basically a region of these petty little kingdoms, um, much like the west of Westeros. At the time, uh, yeah. <laughs> there were, yeah, there, there, there were kings of the Neck, kings of the Marsh, uh, all kinds of other, you know, long forgotten kings, lords, and whatnot, um, pretty much as the name implies. Yeah, um, and with the with other kingdoms, there tended to be a few houses dominating. Like in the north, when you think of the north, you think of House Stark, and how even though at the beginning House Stark didn't control the whole north, they, it took them a while to subdue the Boltons in particular and some other houses. But they've pretty much, as far as we know, have, with, maybe with some dips here and there, they've pretty much been the dominant power in the north the whole time. The, the Lannisters have been the dominant power in the west the whole time, with you know maybe a few dips here and there. Yeah. Uh, the veil, the air, the Aarons in the veil have literally been the power the whole time. There hasn't, as far as we know, there haven't been any dips there. They have really held on to that well. But the Riverlands, it's just been. Uh, there's a whole list of different people that have taken power and held it and then lost it, etc. It's just gone back and forth. There isn't one house you can point to and say they are the Riverland, kind of the soul of the Riverlands, the house that everyone associates with it. There's no Storm's End in the Riverlands. There's no. House Martell of the Riverlands. There's nothing that equates to that. Mm. Right. No Winterfell. It's just, it's a series of rises and falls. A series of, there's been several of the biggest castles in Westeros have existed there, and several of the biggest castles in Westeros have ceased to exist there. So, uh, there's a lot, there's several important ruins there, as well as some important areas as well. So, (laughs) <laughs> like places like Hall, which are sort of like half giant castle, half ruined. <laughs> so we got we got everything, everything in between. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so there's some examples. So, so, I don't want to make it sound like it's never been controlled from within. The Riverlands certainly have had even long periods of time where one ruler controlled it, but those times were mostly way back and. There was less consistency among that. So, let's get into some of those mm-hmm. familiar names who called themselves kings of rivers and hills. Some of the ones that are still familiar now, and as well as a few that have faded. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there, there's some familiar names that are uh, said to have been, you know, kings during this period. Uh, some of them uh, were known as Blackwoods of Raven Tree. Then you got House Bracken of Stonehenge. Uh, of course, you have the Muds. Um, and they ruled from what's now being called the Old Stones. So some of these uh, ancient castles uh, would have been built during this period of the Age of Heroes. The, then there's, of course, the famous feud between House Blackwood and House Bracken, which goes back Basically, to the way that worked was the Brackens overthrew the Blackwood kings and took their place at some point. And the Brackens... Uh, but we're also told that the... The Blackwoods overthrew the Brackens. We're not actually sure who had power first because there's a 
There's a chapter in, in one of the books where it's described, and one character describes it one way, and the same chapter, another character describes it another way. So we're not actually sure which king, which which seat, uh, which house had the kingship first. It's not that important, really. I, my money's on House Blackwood, but uh, I'm, uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's I kind of took that. Yeah, I, I well. think it's the Brackens. Uh, maybe that's just my bias towards all the old gods because I think they're cooler. <laughs> but the but part of the feud <laughs> exists because these two houses fought for primacy in the Riverlands, and they're next door neighbors to each other. That doesn't really help. There's a little river uh, in between them. I think it's the Blue Fork. Uh, I forget. But um, but it's not uh, it's not a massive barrier in this case for them. So they they've fought back and forth quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that tr- that made the feud worse was that the Blackwoods, being a really old house, started off as worshipping the old gods. The Blackwoods and Brackens both worshipped the old gods at this time, of course, because the new gods, the Seven, hadn't been introduced until the Andals came. So, But at some point, the Brackens switched to the new gods. This wasn't in the Age of Heroes, mind you. This would have come later, of course, during the Andal invasion. But we're trying to outline all the different things that has made this feud not just start, but what kept it going. So this was a pretty major point of contention, that the Brackens abandoned the old gods to switch to the Seven. So that one thing that they had in common, uh, their religion, was now something that they could you know, kind of maybe meet in the middle on. Now that wasn't even there anymore. Now they're just on the opposite sides of religion as well. Um, in more modern times, yeah. only about 100 years ago, there was a tournament uh, where Otho Bracken, known as the Brute of Bracken, well, this is how he got his name, the Brute of Bracken, really. He killed Lord Blackwood in a tournament with a blow to his face with a blunted weapon. So, <laughs> you got to really, I mean, these wow. guys are wearing Castle Forge steel. That's... I mean, this is, a, this is a heavy armor protecting, and you just, like, one blow to the head kills him. That's pretty vicious. That's, so, yeah, that's this was somewhere. bad enough. Um, that a Bracken killed a, not only a Blackwood, but the Lord Blackwood. And it got worse because not long after the Blackwood, heir, rather the Bracken heir, died. And Lord Bracken was old and dying. And Otho became his heir. So not only is it, it would have been bad enough for Otho to inherit, but the, but the Brackens, rather the Blackwoods had a lot of time while Lord uh, Bracken was slowly dying to sit there and realize that this guy's going to take over. They had a lot of time to sit there and stew over it, and like this guy that killed our lord is about to. We gotta, we gotta do something about that. So another feud developed, and Black Brackens and Blackwoods were killing each other. Unfortunately, at the time, the guys supposed to keep them in line would have been their overlord, uh, Lord Tully. At the, yeah, would it would have been his job to keep them in line and to keep them from fighting. <coughs> Unfortunately, he was an eight year old kid, so. Maybe not not the most capable of doing yeah. <laughs> of keeping order uh, at the time, but the most famous Blackwood Bracken feud relates to the time of Aegon the Unworthy, and it set the stage set the stage for the Blackfire oh, Rebellions. By itself, these two didn't start the Blackfire Rebellions; they were just two of the key players. But their, their but their feud, of course, right. yeah. really uh. made the Blackfire Rebellions more interesting and really pitted these two against each other. And this, to- this whole time mm-hmm. period keeps coming up, and I think yeah. there's a good reason as to why. But uh, we'll, we'll yes, get into no that doubt. More, it's uh, it, pretty much almost every episode we we somehow get into the Blackfires because they just deal. It just always comes back to them somehow. So, 
Um, it'll just be a matter of whether or not the story gets into them a lot. Hmm. <laughs> so, now, yeah, yeah, the TV they show haven't does. even been mentioned at all in the TV show yet, but we'll see what they do. Um, so, yeah. Aegon the Fourth took a Bracken mistress at one point and fathered uh, Aegor Rivers, who eventually became to be known as Bittersteel, uh, one of the key backers yeah. of the Blackfire Rebellion. Damon Blackfire's probably number two guy. Yeah. Or number one guy, depending on how you look at it. Well, I, I, and we, well, we covered Bittersteel quite extensively yep. uh, in a previous episode where you know we talked about how he became you know the leader of yeah the Golden you know, Company, the Cell Swords, and you know, the Golden Company, and and just I mean to this day they still honor yeah Bittersteel. So he's a big himself. deal, and then and then, but Aegon. The King Aegon set aside his Bracken mistress eventually, and of course, because he had such a flair for the dramatic, he his next mistress was a Blackwood. <laughs> so he set aside a Bracken for a Bla- for a Blackwood, and that of uh. course did nothing to help the old blood feud. And the the product of what this marriage line. of marriage <laughs> the product of this relationship was Brendan Rivers, aka Bloodraven. Um. And of course, Blood Raven and Bitter Steel, as we talked about in another episode, also fought over another one of the great bastards, Shiera Seastar. They both were in love with her, and they both fought over her, and it just made the whole conflict even deeper and more interesting. But, all that aside, the Brackens and the Blackwoods did both fight for Rob Stark. They both signed up to, to be his. Mm. Uh, vassals. They they were because remember we hear the term king in the north, and not king of the north because he's king in the north. He's actually king of the north and the trident. That was his. That's like his official title because it's that's a one thing strategically from Rob's point of view that's kind of difficult. The north is easy to defend, but the north wasn't his whole kingdom. The north, the north and the Riverlands are his kingdom. So that's a pretty big pretty big deal. Where as far as the North is really defensible, the Riverlands are not. So that's he kind of bit off a lot there with that, with with incorporating them into his kingdom. But they fought for him. He's not gonna just Rob's not the kind of guy that's just gonna say, you know, you guys are off on your own. But let's talk a little bit about the Brackets and the Blackwoods a bit more specifically. Um, House Bracken has a okay. flaming red stallion as its sigil, and we do not know their house motto, but let's a horse is a horse, perhaps. <laughs> The Red Stallion uh, is symbolic of their position in the early days, which was as horse breeders. They were reputed as horse breeders. This is part of why I think the Blackwoods were probably kings before the Brackens. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like horse breeders are, you know, the stuff of kings. But so it seems like something they kind of graduated to. They kind of climbed the ladder to get to that point, rather than, hey, we're the horse breeder kings. You know, that doesn't seem right to me. So. Um, yeah, but the fir- it's important to note that the first men brought horses to Westeros, so it could be it could be that um, so. the Brackens were breeders of horses back when wherever they came from before they migrated to Westeros. So it, it's possible that ladder climbing happened way way back. So they were actually that powerful, and they just that the yeah, city was back. just some sort of holdover to a distant path. Yeah, that makes sense. Because um, uh, House Blackwood, um, they still keep the old gods um, as their faith. Um, and so, as you said yeah, before, we don't really know their motto. The, uh, 
Um, they actually have a very old castle with square towers and this really creepy ancient weirwood that is long dead. But apparently dead weirwoods don't rot. They just turn to stone. So that sounds kind Yeah, of petrification or something like that. Yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. I guess it's kind of familiar. Yeah. Uh, so ravens actually come in, uh, come in huge numbers to this tree. I mean, like, it's just like a cloud of them. Uh, and they've been doing Every this night, for countless dusk, years. I guess. Yeah, and they come in, they nest. Drop they lots of bird droppings all over them. <laughs> Don't stand yeah, under that tree. I, I wouldn't would want to park my... Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't want to park my car under there. So uh, the funny thing is, after uh, after all these feuds between these two houses, these these peace deals were actually made, um, and many of those peace deals involved marriages. So long story short, every Blackwood <laughs> is a Bracken, and every Bracken they're is all a kinslayers, <laughs> and their curse and their curse yeah, is that they, they have to fight slayers. each other forever. So it's just it's a vicious, never-ending cycle. Um, so, we come to House Mud. One of the other exactly. ones Steve mentioned was House Mud, which was actually, at the time, probably more, and for much of that ancient history, was more important than the Blackwoods or Brackens. But they're extinct now, so they have ceased making history. Um, there are a few of the tidbits about them, though. We, we know a few important things and, and some fun things. They were the last ethnically first men... Uh, house to rule the Riverlands, and they ruled it apparently for a, a, a potentially as long as a thousand years, which would probably be the longest period anyone ruled the Riverlands. Now, of course, as always, as always with these mm. old time periods, these these date ranges are not to be taken literally um, because no one was there to write that stuff down. So, really, these are just fun numbers to throw out there and to think about and to fire the imagination. But don't uh, cling to them if you're getting into a debate with somebody about the real numbers. Because <laughs> I know you guys do that all the time. That's what you do with your spare time at work, <laughs> around the water cooler. I know that a bunch of you are just hanging around the water cooler, having a coffee at work, saying, gosh, guys, uh, how long do you th- really think House Mud ruled the Riverlands? <laughs> I-, I can hear that. I hear that all the time when I'm walking down the street, people just talking oh. about House Mud. and. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, I've, heard the, I've heard on the train and, you know, what It, it the really gets store. old. <laughs> but here's a quote. Here's a great quote that I like from the, from, the, from the narrative from, I think it comes from Storm of Swords. Tristopher, the fourth of his name, king of the rivers and the hills, ruled from the trident to the neck in the days when the kingdoms of the first men were falling one after the other before the Andals. He was called the Hammer of Justice, and the singers say that he fought a hundred battles and won nine and ninety. When he raised his castle, now a ruin known only as Old Stones, it was the strongest in Westeros. Now, Christopher IV didn't survive that, the hammer. He did not the survive hammer. that 100th battle. Uh, this was apparently seven Andal kings joined forces against him. Uh, his son took over, Christopher V. That's... Uh, but Christopher V was apparently not his equal. Uh, he probably didn't have as much to work with either. Uh, his father lost this big battle to seven Andal kings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably didn't have as many soldiers Oops. to uh, to hold off the in- the invasion. Well, I, and, and to be fair, that's still a lot. Yeah. I, that's a lot to deal with. It's like, okay, I got seven kings and their entire armies. 
<laughs> and I, uh, yeah, hmm. uh, that sounds hard. Yeah, I mean, uh, think of a boxer against seven other boxers. <laughs> bam, bam, bam! Oh, dang! And there's also a Lord Commander uh, Tristan Mud, and they like these Trist names, Christopher and Tristan yeah. um, of the of, of he he was a Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. But he wasn't a uh, he wasn't one of the ones that's remembered well. He apparently did not keep his vows, and uh, although it's just vague to say so, he apparently just almost destroyed the Night's Watch with his wow. or his or the wall, perhaps the wall itself, with his sh- sh- shenanigans, wow, <laughs> whatever they um, were. Because uh, well, uh, another thing to note is we don't actually know the name of the castle um, from which you know House Mud ruled. Um, it was probably. Uh, the local small folk who actually named it Old Stones. But in any case, okay. um, that's what it's called today. So, the thing about the Old Stones, it lies right there at the confluence of the Blue Fork. So, much of the castle is gone. It doesn't exist. Um, many people have carried off the stones to make new structures, maybe even souvenirs, who knows. <laughs> yeah, like, I got an old hey, stone. Yeah, look, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be the equivalent of saying, look, I got a I get a stone from the Twin Towers from 9-11. Yeah, or the, the, the Berlin the Wall. Berlin Wall, yeah, like I know. Yeah. I, I actually, I know a, a number of GIs that actually have stones from the Berlin Wall. Oh, cool. <laughs> that would be a nice souvenir. Um, we catch a glimpse of old stones. Uh, in the center of what, this is a direct quote, in the center of what once would have been old stones yard, a great carved sepulcher, Sepulcher. Sepulcher. <laughs> Still rests amidst a stand of ash and high grass. The lid is carved into the likeness of a man whose bones lay beneath it. Huh. But the rain and wind have weathered it so that only the beard can be seen, obviously. The face only vaguely suggesting nose, mouth, eyes, and a crown. His hands hold a stone warhammer, mm. once carved with runes that would have told its name in history, but those have been worn away over the centuries. Oh, wow. So, yeah, the, the overgrown stony road up to the old stones winds twice around its hill, actually before reaching the summit. So, beneath the ruins, uh, the lower slopes of the hill are quite thickly forested. So, we're hoping to tell you that basically the godswood of old stones is pretty much still intact. Yay! So, they probably still have a weirwood there. We're not 100% sure of that. It's a bit conflicting. The, the text kind of conflicts itself at some point. We're told that the only werewoods in the South are... At one point, we're told the only werewoods in the South are on God's Eye. But at another point, we're told that several of God, that there's some Godswoods that have never been uh, that never been touched. And I'm almost positive that Rob visits the Heart Tree at River Run. So I think that maybe it's one of those cases where a character says something that isn't true. It's not, it's not George R. R. Martin being wrong. It's one of his characters being wrong. That's... The human nature of it all. Um, so there's probably a Werewood Heart Tree there. Um, Seven Streams. That's another familiar name, and it's pretty close to Old Stones. Uh, just a matter of days, really. Uh, it's named for the confusion of rills and brooks that flow into the, bru- okay. into the Blue Fork. So there's like a bunch of smaller streams, seven streams, that flow into so that, that's kind that, of form that the, eventually form the Blue Fork. Anyway. Uh, that that does, of course. That name should be familiar to some of you. Uh, Tom O'Sevens, the singer for the Brotherhood Without Banners, same guy that composed that song about Edmure Tuller not being able to pitch a tent. He was, he was with with a you know a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that he had a few. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> drinking too much. 
Good old floppy fish. fish. (laughs) So, (laughs) so Tom O'Sevens, known for being from Seven Streams, also known for having seven sons, but probably more than that. Um, (laughs) But uh, that song that he wrote for about Edmure Tully apparently caught on. And Ed Muir is just is just kind of kind of haunted by it, embarrassed oh, by it, I and he hates he singers because of that. <laughs> so, so, but this is the, also the general area where the Brotherhood Without Banners is active. There, are a lot of these scenes that we see, we see Old Stones through Catelyn's eyes, but we see High Heart and parts of many parts of the Riverlands, sort of unspecified areas of the Riverlands, that where Arya travels through. Um, both with the Brotherhood and with Sandor Clegane, uh, so we see a lot of that. We see a lot of the devastation of it, and a lot of a lot of just what's going on. We get to see a lot of um, a lot of observation of the military actions that are happening. Which, of course, the Riverlands is the center of all that. But we're going to do an episode eventually on the Brotherhood without banners. Probably not specifically on them, on outlaws in general. There's a couple other outlaws that we want to talk about, but. They'll be the focus of it, probably. They'll be at least half of it, maybe. I would think. Uh, I, I say that, but once I get into, once we get into the research, it may not work out that way. There may be a lot more, but look out for that later. But just be aware that this is the general area where they're active in the area of the Riverlands, uh, especially in the southern parts of the Riverlands uh, that border on the Reach and uh, to, to the south and to the west and the, into the Westerlands. Um, but they've got a pretty wide range. They're 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 because of course they're trying to protect the small folk. They're trying to feed the small folk, and the small folk are all over the place. So you can't just you, you can't be in one spot to do something like that. So let's move forward. The Andal invasion and the preceding period, uh, proceeding period rather. So the first men were still around. There's still plenty of first men blood out. It's not like the Andals went on a war of genocide to wipe out the first men. It was more a case of gradual combining of blood whereas the Andal houses were more powerful and typically married into first men uh, houses and kingdoms thereby sort of andalizing them um, in the sense of a kind of a gradual ethnic takeover rather than just a, some sort of ethnic cleansing or genocide something along that way. also it was very gradual uh, to the point where you know pretty much all the not all, but most of the old houses can be said to still have first man blood in them, but nothing as pure as the Starks, for example. So, several different Andal houses ruled the Riverlands as kings after the fall of House Mud, including the Teagues, the Fishers, and the Justmans. Uh, During that time period, the Riverlands was still ruled from within, and it managed to maintain its independence, but not for a whole lot longer. It also grew larger, Remember that. Remember what Steve said about the, the extent of House Mud's kingdom? It said they ruled from the trident to the neck. Well, nowadays the Riverlands is a bit bigger than that. It's considered uh, to expand to the east as far as Maidenpool, which is actually on the Bay of Crabs. It's not really in a, on a river at all. Um, and to the south, we mentioned at the beginning how the Riverlands goes all the way to Blackwater Rush and to Stony Sept. Well, if you happen to take a look at a map, look at where Stony look at where Stony Sept is, and you'll see that it's quite a bit far to the south of the Trident. So the Riverlands grew a bit during that time period. Um, so it hasn't been a Riverlands hasn't really been a kingdom in the past 350 years, but it was so, like I said, for quite a while before that. During this time, the the, the like I said, the first men were being bred out. They were bred into extreme minorities. Yeah, it's true that the, kind of a good um, way to, to put it. Also, you know, to add on to things. 
The name of the castle of Old Stones, um, a former seat of kings, was lost. But most importantly is actually one of the Storm Kings, um, whose name we really don't know, he actually came and conquered the Riverlands, slaying the last River King. Um, it was probably someone from House Fisher. Uh, this would have happened a little under 300 years prior to Aegon's Landing. And as uh, Aziz has already said, the, uh, the, this, this period is kind of vague because a lot of people were not writing down the history. Uh, so that king... Who has yeah. time to write down history when everyone's being killed and yeah, people so don't even know how to write? King, king Fisher. So a short time after this, yeah, <laughs> and, and of course being in the Awkward. Riverlands, <laughs> it would it would be uh, King <laughs> Fisher's Fisher. kind of natural. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So yeah, be like name, be name, mm. yeah, be like. It'd be like I see what you did there. King Stone <laughs> up there in the fingers, <laughs> or King Snow in the north. Anyway, so so a short time after this, a bridge <laughs> and a matching pair of towers were built on either side of the Green Fork. <clears throat> yeah, nah, well, these the phrase upgraded, Blah. and they became the twins. And uh, that's a very, very big strategic point, um, especially for Rob during his uh, his little campaign during the War of Five Kings. So at some point, the phrase came in, and uh, for some reason, they wanted this breed a lot. I mean, like, they, they made <laughs> rabbits look silly. Very fertile. They're like... I mean, look, Walter Free has, like, what, like, 30? <laughs> 21 oh, sons and I mean, 19 daughters, or 18 daughters, I think. Although, although maybe they're not all his. There's some evidence, perhaps, that one of no. his own grandsons is impregnating his wives. Well, but, yeah, that, you'll have to... Yeah. You'll have to check out our episode on House yeah, Frey. Yeah, so uh, for more they got their own episode. Um, and, yeah... They 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 were they got their own, <laughs> and, and see if you can see. Yeah, it's 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 one of a it's one of a it's, it was an experimental format that we don't really do anymore. But it's it's half spoilery and half non spoilery, so be aware of that. But we go into a lot of detail with the phrase and that their family tree and how they formed and, and the political ramifications of, of their existence and all that. So it's it's good stuff if we if, if we don't mind tooting our own horn. Uh, Wilder Frey is just a no. just a quite the character. <laughs> Oh, it's one of those yeah, guys yeah, I mean, you love to hate, uh, no matter what. Um, I, I I just remember I just remember when I was reading the book, I always used the the, the reference notes of the families, and then you had the yeah you had what was in the front, you had the maps in the back, mm-hmm. you had families, and when I think it was Storm of Swords when it came out, that's the one that had the phrase, and it was like <laughs> yeah, <"Jesus." laughs> and I was like, oh my god, are you kidding me? It was Holy really confusing. God. Oh, it did. It did. Us recording that podcast was really it was was quite something. We just we just had to keep figuring things out, and it was like all these people named Walder, and it, it, it was it, it's night. Yeah, there was. Like it really felt Walders like an accomplishment. Getting all that Walden's. straight, it really felt like an accomplishment. I felt like you know, 
I agree. Felt like we deserved some sort of reward for that. Um, but we should. an interesting note, I've never seen anyone else mention this. I think this is a, 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 a discovery that's unique to us at the History of Westeros podcast here. Putting two and two together, the Stormlands conquered, the Storm King conquered the Riverlands about 350 years, 360, 370 years before, uh, before the beginning of Aegon's conquest. So that might indicate, and the fra- rather the phrase got their start a little bit after that, maybe 50 years after that. So it's quite possible the phrase, as far as their origination, they didn't come. They might may, may not have come from the Riverlands. You got a situation where it's a new, uh, a relatively new uh, overlord of the Riverlands, and they're from the Stormlands. So quite possibly there was some new. This this the store the, the phrase originate in the Stormlands. They were a house that got did some great service either during the conquest or shortly thereafter, and the Storm King rewarded them with new lands and titles. It's little you you wonder. I mean, it's certainly possible that. The Storm King was re- re- rewarding or, or uh, the service of some, you know, in, n- native Riverlands people, but it's got to be a possibility that they came from the Stormlands. So, and I got to think that a lot of Riverlanders would be very happy to think of the phrase as foreigners and <laughs> not to be like, yeah, they're not us, they're not our blood. They're, we got, we don't have anything in common with them. But um, I think that. It's, so I think it's a distinct possibility, but it, ultimately it's just a kind of a fun thing to think about. Now, the big thing, the big deal though, the Stormlanders are a big deal as far as their his, making a history of the Riverlands, but the really big deal is the Iron Islands. There is a ton of history going back and forth between these two houses, and the a good example of the type of thing that goes on between the Riverlands and the Islands, the kind of byplay, the kind of way, the ways they interact with each other, and the, the, the way, kind of the, the opinion they have of each other. Well, there was a river king who had his sons captured by the Iron King. These are unnamed kings in this case. Uh, and it was, it was almost certainly some sort of raid. They, ca- you know, uh, uh, and it, they had to, it probably went pretty far inland. Maybe not, though, because Old Stone's if it was Old Stones, which could have been, we don't know. Old Stones is pretty close to the coast, relatively speaking. But the but at any point, the River King's sons were captured. And I don't know if the Iron King made demands or not. He quite possibly did. But <coughs> if he did, those demands apparently weren't met. <laughs> because the River King received his sons in pieces sent back. Ouch. Which uh, comes up again later. Probably. We won't go into that yet. Yeah. <laughs> We'll probably... That's probably not uh, good for public relations. Pie! 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 So... I want some pie! The Iron Boy... <laughs> Steve wants some pie. <laughs> so, so, perhaps 60 years before Aegon's Landing, Iron King Harwin oh, Hoare... That's H O A R E. Yeah, yeah Hoare, it's not... Or H W H O R E. Just make sure we're not cursing... <laughs> No, no, we would never do that. Uh, A.K.A. Harwin Hardhand, that was his nickname, uh, swooped in and claimed the Riverlands for himself. Now, you, you got to wonder about how this could have... It's interesting to think about the Riverlands changing hands so quickly in just a short span like that. But I don't think it's really that strange. Um, even though the, the last... Okay, backing up just a little bit. The last king of the Riverlands from the Stormlands 
was the Storm King Arik, uh-huh. and he was the one that lost. He was the one who lost the Storm King, or rather, lost the Riverlands to Hard Hands. <laughs> um, Hard Hands. That's a funny name, yeah, isn't well, it, Steve? Well, it doesn't <laughs> sound like he's a much of a, a decent, fine, friendly ruler, does it? Mm, no, no, no. He doesn't sound so amiable, does he? But. It's interesting to think about how the Ironborg can could really dominate the Riverlands like this. Um, it's it's unusual for them. Their 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 history is all full of raiding and uh, taking and yeah. running. Uh, and and even when they were at their most powerful, when they held sway over the west coast of, of of Westeros, they didn't really control that far inland. So controlling the entire Riverlands, which they did during Harwin's time and for the next two generations is really out of the ordinary for the Ironborn. And it maybe indicates that they were move at the time they were moving out of their old style of uh, well, the old way. They may have been trying to become more traditional conquerors and r- rule their captured territories rather than just constantly take from them and go back home and you know come back later and take more and etc. This back and forth of raiding mm-hmm. and, and reaving. But uh, how could and also, I think it's interesting to point out that Harwin probably... Rather, this is sort of goes speaks to the opposite side of that. Maybe maybe one of the reasons Harwin had an easier time conquering the Riverlands was because why would the Riverlords really stick their neck out to make sure the Riverlands stay under the domain of the Storm King? It's one thing to fight, to stay independent, to defend yourself against a foreign conqueror, but when you're already controlled by a foreign conqueror, you have a lot less motivation to stop a new foreign conqueror. Sure, you want to stay alive. You don't want him killing you in your own. But if he's going to let you yield and and kneel to him and be ruled by him, yeah. you got to send your taxes to this guy instead of the other yeah. guy? Who cares? Which, I mean, one, con- one foreign conqueror is the same as another, I mean, in a nutshell. It's possible True. that one's worse than the other. But, You're still hey, doing it. I can say, you can say, hey, this was the guy that made us... Suffer the phrase. We'll 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 gladly you know be ruled by the Iron Islands instead. <laughs> yeah, but but it's interesting to also think about how think about Vikings and the Viking type peoples, which the Ironborn are sort of modeled off of. They were really powerful, and and one of the things that gave them uh, such a far reach was their the technology of their ships. Their ships had such a shallow draft that they could take it from sea, ocean, up river. Uh, and they could use those the rivers allowed them to reach far inland and do all kinds of damage deep inland because the rivers would reach far in well even though we're talking about the riverlands here you would think that that would be a factor here it's not the rivers all start west and head east emptying out on the west coast Uh or on the east coast rather so there are no ways in from the Ironman's the Bay West. by river, they can't they can't sail into the Riverlands from the Ironman's Bay. Uh, they have the only way to get up river from from the west coast of uh, of Westeros is to go all the way south to like the Mander. I was going, I was uh, about to say. So they can do that. They can do that in the Reach, but they can't do that in the Riverlands. All the rivers flow west to east, so there's no way in for their longships. So I, I wonder what they were doing to keep the Riverlands in check. Um, Possibly they built ships on the rivers and started enforcing their rule on these rivers, but they weren't bringing longships over from Pike. They weren't bringing longships over from the Iron Islands or any sort of ships over from the Iron Islands because they there was just no way to do that. Um, so that's 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 something really interesting that I had never noticed until we really started researching this. That's just not something that was possible. Um, 
So maybe Harwin was a really strong king, though. Maybe he was just kind of a really unusual ironborn. He had more of a talent for administration and ruling a large-scale um, empire of sorts. It wasn't truly an empire, but, you know, two kingdoms, pretty big, certainly considering what the ironborn are used to doing. That's, that's kind of... So, so I, I like to think about that and wonder. It's also possible that maybe the Storm Kings were just lax. They, just, they, they were in a period of... Um, not being able to hold on to that much territory as Stormlands would have been encompassing the whole of the Riverlands, probably part of what's now the Crownlands. So that's a pretty difficult thing to administer yeah. and maybe maybe the king that maybe King Arik just wasn't up to the task of his predecessors. Yeah, and, yeah. So. and it should be clear that you know his name Arik is spelled A-R-R-C-K if I'm not mistaken. Oh. Or E-K, yeah, E-C, I think. A-R-R-E-C, I think. Arak, yeah. I think that's it. Um, so, uh, so, so Harwin ruled the Riverlands for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, we, don't, we don't know the name of his son, but his son took over and was king for a while. Uh, but we've all heard of his grandson, Heron the Black, uh, who undertook a project that, perhaps if circumstances indifferent, would have enabled the Iron Islands to continue to move out of this reaving, raiding culture. Uh, they were building this great castle to dominate the Riverlands, to rule it. Um, and this castle, of course, was known as Harrenhal. Is the oh. <laughs> So, Harrenhal. Let's get into Harrenhal. Harrenhal! Dun-dun-dun-dun! <laughs> it deserves an intro. Yes, it does. So, Heron the Black beggared the Riverlands in order to fund this monstrosity of a castle, and this, of course, this this didn't help. Yeah. The, the people the people couldn't have liked this guy as a ruler. He, he sounded like he just was oh, willing yeah. to do anything to get this castle built. He didn't care about who he hurt or what, what environmental damage he did. He, he, this whole thing, this whole project was a disaster waiting to happen. It really mm-hmm. was. And in a sense, it's a disaster still happening. It's sort of like he created a, a black hole in Westeros that's yeah, exactly, still sucking yeah. in. It's still sucking in resources and lives, and it's the site of people think it's cursed and all no, this. Even so, yeah, even in the books, Arya makes comments about, you know, okay, this isn't right. Yeah, yeah, something's not right here. So, um, he wanted... He really had this huge ego about this castle. He wanted it to be the biggest castle in Westeros. He wanted it to be... And he wanted it to be... To stay that way. So he, he didn't just try to, like... What's the biggest castle in Westeros? Well, let's build it a little bit bigger than that. No. He went well beyond that. He was like, what's the biggest castle in Westeros? Let's go way beyond that. Um, let's... For some of, just some, some of the horror stories that are told about what it took to build this oh castle... Oh, yeah. It took... First of all, it took 40 years to build, which Crazy. actually isn't that long, really. Castles take a long time, but it's pretty damn long. But it's, I mean, castles typically take years and years to build. So don't think that that's like a really absurd, but it is pretty damn yeah. long. Um, there were, we're told stories about how thousands of captives were from other realms and possibly from the Riverlands as well, died in the quarries. Or chained to sledges, laboring oh, on these Lord. towers, these five huge five. towers. We're told that people died of heat exposure and of extreme cold. Uh, that says a lot about the extreme weather of Westeros and how it goes back and forth, and also oh. t- says a lot about just how long this castle took to build. I mean, we, t- we talked about forty years. Like how many different winters went past? Oh yeah, 
went up and down. So, yeah, good old Westerosi weather. For me. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and as as most people know, uh, Westeros weather seasons tend to last years. So, <laughs> like, if a winter comes, it comes for like it does. You know, five, six, seven even, years, and then you have even in summer, the Riverlands, even in the Riverlands, yeah. I mean, Dorne is probably the safest place to live during the winter. Yeah, I would think so. It might be not. It might be actually quite nice down there. Dude, that's what you <laughs> <laughs> it might be. It might be like spring. Um, so, for all you fans of the North uh, and of the old gods, try not to be too shocked. But the weirwoods, deep breath. The weirwoods were cut down in large numbers to provide rafters and beams for this damn place. If Westeros had an EPA, I'm sorry, but they would have considered Harrenhal to be some sort of, you know, Nazi type establishment. <laughs> the worst, the worst kind of guy. Yeah, kind of I, guy. I mean, he he, he just he, he literally <coughs> enslaved people to build this establishment. So that just creates another small mystery, uh, which is. Heron cut down. He had no compunction about cutting down Werewoods to build these rafters. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to something we talked about earlier for a minute. We pointed out that Werewoods in the South were were pretty scarce. And they're certainly scarce by this time. Most of the Werewoods were gone in the South well before Heron came along. Uh, because the Andals were cutting them down plenty. They didn't, they didn't, remember, they didn't sign any pact with the children. And even if they had, well, the children are largely gone. Who's going to enforce it? So... We what we have is a situation where Heron has some werewoods really nearby mm-hmm. that he just didn't he but he didn't tap this source of werewoods. He did not cut down the werewoods on the Isle of Faces, which is right there. Yeah. Hall sits on the shore of the God's Eye. Yeah. But he did not, despite his willingness to chain people to sledges, to have captives die. Remember, there's no, remember, there's no slavery in Westeros. These weren't slaves, but I suspect that's just semantics. It sounded like they were every they were slaves, but he just gave them some other name. Yeah, like, you know, thralls, like they they call them thralls in, in the Iron Empl- Islands. Uh, the only we call them employees here <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They sit in cubicles instead of chains. <laughs> <laughs> Chain to a computer rather than a, a rock sledge. It's just a. Yeah. It's the same thing with a modern face put onto. Pretty it. much, but. So I think that's really peculiar. Heron, who is just like really clearly willing to do anything, but he wasn't willing to go to the God's Eye to chop down the werewoods there, which says yeah. that either either the Green Men are really something people are afraid of, or maybe he was really superstitious, or I don't know. But I, there's some there's an explanation in there. Yeah, I, 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 I actually I actually lean towards the fact that he was probably superstitious. That's uh, yeah. That's how I feel. I just you know I, I'm. I'm not saying that I have any proof. I just, yeah. you know, I just think that, yeah, he was probably superstitious. Um, because Maybe he was like Victorian. Victorian's really superstitious. You know, he's a guy that that he pays his due to all the gods he can. He's kind of an all-encompassing, give all the gods their due. Maybe that's common amongst Iron Islanders. I, I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll have to leave that as an open mystery right now. But maybe that'll be explained to us one day. Because you'd think that would be really easy. I mean, a trees float. All you got to chop the tree down, haul it, get a little barge, haul it across the lake. That seems easy. But yeah, he didn't do it. Um, okay, but let's talk about just how, just how big Aaron Hall is. Because we talked about how it's on a massive scale, but just how massive it is. Um, it's got colossal curtain walls that are described as sheer and high as mountain cliffs. 
if you're standing atop the battlements, the the wood and iron scorpions, uh, you know, those are bolt throwers, large type of, um, basically a ballista is a huge crossbow. It's kind of like, a, it's kind of a crossbow and a catapult and a huge crossbow, I guess. Yeah, just, um, yeah, just, a, just think of it as a siege weapon. They look like real scorpions when you're observing them from, from the height. So, um, Harrenhal's gatehouse, the gatehouse, which is a small, generally a small opening keep at, you know, the, to defend the gate. It's larger than Winterfell's Great Keep, which is its largest inner structure. Uh, and it's and the, but of course in this case the stone is colored, discolored, and fissured thanks to Dragonfire, yeah. <laughs> Dracarys. So Dragonfire apparently hotter than normal fire. Um, we can we can guess. And, 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 <laughs> and if you remember in the show, they actually mentioned about like you know what melts stone, and Arya is like Dragonfire. I mean, Clearly, Dragonfire does melted, look at that melted stone. There's a melted, melted tower right there that proves it for you. Because yep. um, uh, consider Winterfell, that Winterfell was burned. Um, but the stone is still there, and none of the stone's melted. It just gutted the interior, all the wood and glass and everything that was not stone. I'm sure it stained the stones, but they're still there. But Harrenhal, there's some melted stuff going on there. So yeah, that's big different. time. It's, a, it's pretty nasty. But more on the actual size of it, just to blow your mind a little more as to how huge this thing is, the shortest of Harrenhal's towers is half again as high as the tallest one in Winterfell. Wow. <laughs> so wow. Put that, let's say that again. The shortest tower in Harrenhal is 50% taller than the tallest tower in Winterfell. Wow. Yet, yet that said, none of these Harrenhal towers are proper because they're all like, a lot of them are falling apart due to not being... Uh, to being in disrepair. Consider the upkeep on a castle this large, like the amount of servants oh, you have to hire, the, oh the, the masons you have to fix stones and all that. You just like, it's no wonder. Like all the stuff that's told about Harrenhal as far as the curse of Harrenhal. Well, the curse of Harrenhal, partly, I mean, there's some ghost stories and some bad stories, which we'll get into. Oh, yeah. But the, the horror stories from a modern point of view could just be the darn the upkeep bills. Like anyone who owns a house. <laughs> Out there, any of you listeners who own a house like I do, you could think, you could say to yourself, "I'm sure you've had the same thought that I've had every once in a while." A house is a place you live, but it's also just a big hole that you throw money into. <laughs> well, Heron Hall is like that on a truly massive, epic scale. So, yeah. Um, so, like I said, none of these towers are proper, though. They, a lot of them are leaning or melted, and thanks to good old Balerion the Black Dread and his dragon fire, um, we're also told that. Heron the Black mixed the blood of children into the oh, mortar Lord. for these stones, but yeah, that's that, that's probably just a story, but that's kind of creepy. Yeah, it certainly adds to the old the mystique and the, uh, the whole the whole sort of haunted oh, horror, yeah. uh, haunted house feel that Heron Hall has. Even Heron, even Heron's bear baiting, he wanted to do in lavish style. We saw the bear pit oh. uh, too, uh, you know, really recently in the TV show, Last and um, yeah. So, he wanted to have the, the bear pit is ten yards across, five feet deep, walled in stone, floored with sand, and circled by marble benches. Yeah, so. that's uh, oh, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, that was. Uh, you know what? And, and, and the sad fact is, is, is the show it did a decent job of showing how dangerous right, yeah. it was. Um, I don't feel like it really gave that scene justice as how it was played out in the books. I agree. I don't think there was enough tension. I think I didn't really feel like uh, I didn't feel like anyone ever seemed like really there was really that much danger. danger. 
I really yeah. didn't. I mean, yeah. so, as soon as Jamie showed up, you knew he was going to jump in, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. I, I, I felt the tension was just, it really wasn't there. Yeah, yeah it was a little bit. I, I tend to agree with you. Um, but we're told that on the very day that Heron Hall was declared complete, the very day Heron took up residence in his completed castle, Aegon the Conqueror set foot on the mainland of Westeros with his dragons Oops. and an intent to conquer. Uh-oh. Aegon, he started off, which you'd think that, this, the, despite the fact that Aegon had such a small army, um, you'd think that he would focus his, his efforts on one kingdom at a time, but no. He sent Rhaenys and his half-brother Ori south to deal with the Stormlands. He sent Visenya and his fleet north to deal with the Vale, while he himself marched on King Heron. Um, because Heron was so unpopular, Aegon didn't have to combi- didn't have to defeat some combined Riverlands Iron Islands army. Also, I don't. Also, I feel like uh, Heron didn't ha- fully have time to prepare for Aegon's coming. Also, it sounded like the guy was a bit arrogant, so he wasn't really worried. He's like, I got this huge ass castle. What am I worried about? Yeah. Well, I guess he just didn't reckon with the, the dragons, you know. Yeah. Um, so, it's from what we're told, quite a few of the river lords were just ready to jump ship, and and they were like, Aegon, dragon guy, I haven't even met him, but I'd much rather be fight for him than Heron. So, right? They were they were ready to jump ship pretty quickly. Now, this included Lord Edmund Tully of Riverrun, uh, who we'll get into a bit uh, very soon. But he bec- apparently he was important with this whole strategy. Um, but it wasn't long before Balerion burned Heron and his sons to death and the Riverlands had submitted to Aegon. There must have been more conflict than that because Edmund did something. Um, he, he did something to earn uh, the title because he was given overlordship, Lord Paramountship of, of the Riverlands after this whole thing. So, but in any case, Aegon took over fairly quickly. We don't have a lot of detail as to the rest of the takeover. We we have detail on him taking out Heron and his sons and melting river, uh, melting Heron Hell. So, but it's not really that strange to think about people. They'd rather submit to this badass, supposedly somewhat honorable, huge dragon rider guy instead yeah. of this tyrant who wrecked. The economy and uh, ecology of the Riverlands uh, just to build his castle, um, and of course killed a lot of people in the process. Let's not forget that the, mo- the most important factor. So, so things didn't work out so well for Heron. Yeah, he was he was pretty cruel tyrant. <laughs> so as it turns out, instead of ruling the Riverlands though for centuries, the Iron Islands held them for only three generations, which is pretty important to play out um, as far as the history of the Riverlands. Heron Hall was first granted to House, I hope I pronounced this right, House Coheris. Coheris. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was basically, yeah, it was a very uh, non-Westerosi name. Mm-hmm. We we don't know for certain, but it's a safe bet that Lord Coheris, Coheris was a ve- uh, Valerian who lived on Dragonstone in service to Aegon. Very possible. Um... It's possible that House Cahetes were lords in their own right back in Valeria before the Doom of Valeria. Someone, a house sworn to the Targaryens, and when the Targaryens mm-hmm. fled, then their, you know, some of their underlings would go with them. The vassals, yeah. And, and House Cahetes eventually died out, and unfortunately it didn't seem to take very long. 
In fact, every house that's held Heron Hall since Heron the Black died has met misfortune. Uh, it's believed to be cursed by many uh, mm. due to that factor, for one, all these families dying out, but also there's some other things. Um, this, this timing, the timing of Aegon's landing coinciding with Heron Hall being finished is something that will probably never be shaken as far as uh, an aspect of the curse of Heron Hall. Um, that's going to be. It's just such a great story. No one's ever. People aren't going to forget that. I don't think so. It's going to. That's going to be the shadow that hangs over it for as long as it's around. Probably. Um, some of this is just perception, though. I think some of the the perception of Harrenhal is just, it just kind of grows in the telling. Once it's a, once there's stories of curses, and and uh, you know bad things happening. People talk about that, and it grows. You know, it's like rumors. They rumors grow like a game of oh, telephone. Yeah, how a rumor just grows every time. Anytime someone wants to tell their friend about a rumor, they want to. It's a natural human instinct to just kind of spice it up just a little bit oh, to make it sound more interesting. So much, yeah. And over the course of ten different people telling the story ten different ways, and each time the story gets a little bit more exaggerated. By the time you get to the end, it's massively exaggerated. Well, so. For example, is uh, I remember, I remember when I was in kindergarten, our teacher actually had us. She whispered something. In, she had us all sit in a circle. She whispered one line into one person's ear, and they were all supposed to whisper all the way around. And then the last person next to the teacher would actually say what she heard, and it was totally different from what she said. Wow. So I mean, yeah, it's the same thing. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the telling of the stories would change with every person, even so in the they, same room. That's that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're just telling the story. You're you're trying to you know maybe spice things up a little bit, over elaborate, make it sound more dramatic than it really is. Oh, it was bad. And it's a concept that George really gets too. He really gets that aspect of human nature, how how stories grow in the telling and how rumors oh, yeah. get exaggerated. He's 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 really really understands that concept. It's all over the books, well, and it's one of the things that we run into constantly when we're researching for for our, our podcast because we see that oh, yeah. his characters, we have to sort of distill what they're saying and yeah. and compare uh, it to what others say. Salt. Yeah, you take it with a grain of salt. Uh, particularly, like a perfect example would be like Old Nan stories. Oh yes, very um, much so. You know, I mean, Old Nan. You know, she would tell all these crazy stories to Bran and Arya uh, about the the Night's King and the whatever. And yeah, a lot I, of good ones. <laughs> you, you t- yeah, you you just kind of take it with a grain of salt and say, okay, there's probably some truth in there, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, going back to, to the other side of things. A lot of it is truth, a lot of it is rumor, rather, a lot of it is conjecture, a lot of it is stories that have grown in the telling, but a lot of it is actually quite accurate. A lot of it, a lot of Heron Howell's reputation is entirely deserved. Um, but I want to point out also that a lot of the houses that went extinct in Heron Howell did so, it was their own fault. They got on the wrong side of a rebellion, or they yeah. did something stupid... That got them, got their neck, you know, they stuck their neck out and it just got them caught up on the wrong side. So, uh, but also, uh, because Heron Hall has only existed for such a short time, a period, basically the United, the Iron Throne period, I like to call it, the, the period from which Aegon ruled, uh, started the Iron Throne and, and including, you know, modern times with uh, Robert and Joffrey, etc. So, a lot of these 
situations that I'm referring to where Heron Hall was kind of caught on the wrong side of things is pretty much all of these were rebellions. Um, so Heron Hall was part of part of a lot of rebellions on the wrong side. So, <laughs> okay. So for example, uh, ghosts are actually said to be dwelling in Heron Hall. Uh, there's actually stories of men who were in their beds asleep, and they're found the following morning seared and burned uh, quite mysteriously. That's not just a, that's hard to dismiss as just a story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, people are you know they wake up burned and dead. Yeah, like that's <laughs> what's that's that, you can't just dismiss that to rumor. <laughs> yeah, so this includes house coyotes. Um, so six families have only rooted there for only 300 years. Um, although there are others who have held the title. Uh, they're fall, you know, and basically the follow is the Towers, the Haraway, the Strong, the Lowston, and the Went. We think that's chronological, but it's possible the Haraways were before the Towers. Um, we don't know almost anything about House Towers, so we'll have to skip yeah. them. Uh, they didn't rule Harrenhal very long. We know that much, I guess. Uh, as for House Haraway, there's a couple tidbits there. Um, a good example of the things that happen to people who come from Harrenhal, um, King Magor the Cruel, uh, using him as, a, uh, oh. as an example. Of course, uh, with a name like that, you know he's not a friendly guy or he doesn't have a great reputation. Well, he had... Oh, he, he might be a nice guy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's a totally undeserved nickname. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. He gives out coins to children. Yes, yes. And um, <laughs> he only executes his wives when they're... Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. He had many wives and a, he had a little flavor of Henry VIII in there. None of them gave him sons. Yeah. Apparently, none of them gave him any kids. Henry VIII had a few daughters, and, and the one, ba- you know, the one kind of questionable bastard son kind of deal. But Magor had no kids at all. The guy was probably infertile. Um, but of course, in a uh, male-dominated society, those things always get blamed on the women. Even though he had, uh, oh, he yeah. tried, he tried with so many different women. But of course, it was their fault. Yeah, uh, that's hey, oh, poor Alice. <laughs> yeah, so Alice was probably put to death because we're told that Magor, Magor rather killed off a lot of his wives. Um, yeah. In an effort to replace them with ones that might bear him children, but that never happened. So, um, <laughs> so he probably had her killed. So that's probably not so good. Also, to note is uh, there's also uh, Lord Haraway's town, which actually sits on the tribe due north of Harrenhal. Um, it actually features a, a very important ferry, which uh, which reveals the name of Lord Harrenhal's town. Uh, perhaps of an ancient river king. Uh, yeah, there's a. It's an old story, I guess, about a fairy. There's a fairy there that's named after King. What is it? Andahar, old King Andahar. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I yeah, guess that fairies, was an old river king. I don't know. <laughs> and, and the fairy is actually called the two-headed water horse of the old King Andahar. Hmm. What a strange name is that? <laughs> I suppose. Uh, <laughs> let, let, hey, let me let me call this boat. The two-headed water horse of old King Andar. <laughs> imagine painting that on the back. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, the, you're gonna charge extra for that uh, in signature. <laughs> in the signature. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so, someone's gonna get paid very well. Nowadays, Lord Haraway's town is controlled by House Root. Um, that's R O O T E. Um, House Strong would be next in chronological order for controlling Harrenhal, but we're gonna skip them because 
the way they come into play fits better into a narrative that we're going to get into in the next episode. Um, part two. Yes, so we'll save them for part two. Right, and next after that will be Hout Moosen. Um, they had a black bat for a sigil. I'm Batman. <laughs> um, and they had quite the dark reputation to go along with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably took over Heron Hall no later than A170, probably as early as 120s to 130s. It's hard to say for sure, but um, some of the stories about them probably contribute to the idea that Heron Hall is cursed because uh, not only does Heron Hall have a lot around it that, that happens that's happened to it and happened with it and happened because of it that leads to these stories, but the Lothstons did a lot of things as a family that sort of contributed to Heron Hall's nature as a, as a kind of a horror story. Um, and, of course, this effect is enhanced by the fact that the Lothstons appear to be the house that ruled Heron Hall the longest. So you have this very... You have this dark family with this great reputation. And it's hard to say whether they cultivated the, the, the curse of Heron Hall to, to you know, make themselves more fearsome, or whether there's really something to this curse and it kind of affected them and made them more evil, or whether it was just a marriage of, of like-minded... You know, the cursed, how, cursed castle gets... Some bad people to move in, and they just uh, every, everyone gets along. <laughs> yep, but, wow. um, but I think that some of these stories about the Lothstons tie into Heron Hal because there were just there's some great, really dark stuff. Lord Lucas the Pander and his son Manfred of the Black Hood were infamous Lothstons. Now, when we first recorded this episode, we first took a shot recording this episode. Neither of us had looked up what Pander means, and apparently, it's an English slang term, British for a pimp. So, really? so yeah, I had, a, I had one of our listeners actually told us that. You know, I should have uh, actually a couple of our two of our listeners pointed that out. I wish I had bothered to written down their names because they deserve credit for pointing that out. Sorry, guys, good job on that on that reference, but I, I, I uh, forgot who you guys were. But but good job. Um, so yeah, so maybe he was like I don't know going out into his small folk and pulling you know pulling out the the the, the best looking women and forcing them to service his his family or his lords or. I don't know, but it's Ugh. or maybe he was that pimping out his nice. maybe he was pimping out his own daughters or something like that. It's just gross. And in any case, but that's we could run really running the gamut there. Um, there was a Jane Lofton who was consort to Egon the Unworthy. Yeah, there's a, yet another in uh, oh, the long line of mistresses. He had a Blackwood mistress, a Bracken uh, mistress, and you know all these other ones. He it basically keeps coming up. He slept with whoever he wanted to, and one of his consorts was Egon the Unworthy. It was uh, Jane Lofton. Um, oh my god! Aegon where he keeps coming up. He just he just never stops. But oh my goodness! And because he was king from 172 to 184, we can place her time frame roughly in there somewhere. So, um, mm-hmm. would have been in that part of t- that that time period. Um, there, Probably the later part. One of the latter Lothstons. That's kind of hard to say. Um, Mad Danelle Lothston. She Uh-oh. were told the stories about her where she would send. Giant black bats out into the night, looking for bad children to collect and put in her cooking pots. Now that that just sounds like a story, but it's a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, yeah, well, definitely sounds like a story. Sounds like something out of uh, Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, we haven't heard of any actual bats, large bats existing in Westeros, but it's a cool story. Um, but also, apparently, she bathed in blood. Um, now oh, that does have real world parallels as well as a few other parallels within within the song of uh, Ice and Fire. What's her name? What what, what what's her name? Shiera uh, Seastar. Of the Bathory. 
Oh, the, yeah. Oh, you're Romanian. talking about real world. Yeah, Lady Bathory. Uh, I believe she was Ro- Lady Romanian. I think she was, and she did that exact yeah, yeah. thing. She would take uh, young she peasant girls blood, yeah. and have them killed and drained, and she would bathe in their blood. She thought it would make her younger and all this stuff. So, so that's a real world parallel. George borrowing a bit from real world history there and, and putting it in there. It's pretty cool. Um, so. That story is told about her. We're also told that she era sea star, the the, the other the, one of the other great bastards. That maybe she did that. Actually, I believe that that was told about her mother. Maybe not about her. Um, Lady Sereni of Lys was her mother. So anyway, Madanelle also was known to ride in battle. Though she she would lead her own armies apparently, or at least there's a couple occasions of her doing that. And she had really striking figure. She was quite the. Uh, quite the visage with her long red hair and her form-fitting black armor. Uh, so she was probably kind of intimidating. Um, I would imagine. The Loftons must have died out around 250 AL. Uh, perhaps Mad Donnell never married. Uh, gee, who would? Uh, no one wanted to marry the crazy blood-bathing <laughs> bat lady? <laughs> She might not have oh, had yeah. children, but she, but she, but there was at least one I hope more. Not. Yeah, but there was at least one more Lostin lord after her. So whether it was like her, a cousin that took over, or she managed to have a son somehow, there was at least one more Lostin because the last Lostin was a male. Um, we know that because the blacksmith in Harrenhal at the time when Arya gets in there um, served the last Lord Lostin. So, wow. so we he's so that recent? he'd been there for a while. Yeah, there's only the, the next family, which is the the Wentz. Uh, they only ruled for about three generations. So, so let's so get into after them. The, after the Lostons, Lostons, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. they died out. Um, we have House Went. They were they were raised pretty recently, um, but they died out quite quickly. Looks like you know, as uh, as he's already said, you know, they died out only three generations in. Um, so of course the curse wins again. <laughs> Aaron Hall wins again. <laughs> yep. So the most famous went is probably Oswell, who was the Mad King Ares Kingsguard. Um, so yeah, he was part of the Kingsguard. So that's a pretty big deal mm-hmm. to be a part of the Kingsguard. And he actually died at the Tower of Joy fighting Edard Stark and his companions at the time. Oswell was which. And that that scene keeps always comes up back over and over the Tower of Joy, kind of like kind of like again. Aegon the Fourth, huh? but not nearly as but uh, not nearly as central to the plot. Well, I'm saying Aegon, not yeah, the Tower of Joy, is huge to the central plot. Um, yeah. So, uh, but something that else I've never seen pointed out before. Um, I think this might be a history of Westeros original factoid for you. Um, it's a bit tragic. The Tower of Joy is tragic for a lot of reasons, but it's even more tragic when you realize that Catelyn's mother was Menissa Went. Now, we don't know the connection between Menissa and Oswell. They're of a similar generation. It's possible they were brother and sister. Possibly um, Menissa was an aunt or a cousin. We're not really sure. But that means Ned's sons have went... Ned's kids have went blood in them. So Ned... You know, fighting a went means it's a there's a little bit of kin slaying going on there, uh, so that's pretty sad. Uh, Manissa went just real quick. That's Catelyn's mother. She died trying to give Edmure a little brother, 
Um, unfortunately, neither of them survived. Uh, Manissa and the young, the young infant boy died together. Um, another batch of Wentz would be Walder Frey's fifth wife and Walder Frey's ninth son's wife. I'll say wow. that again. Walder Frey's fifth <laughs> wife and Walder Frey's oh, ninth Lord. son's wife. Both of them were... I hate talking about the Freys. <laughs> I, I do. Both of them They're, they're just so confusing. <laughs> it really is. So, so that's... But that... Here you go. The Curse of Heron Hall continues. Both... The, the, so this is the guy that had 21 sons, right? But none of them came oh from that Wentz wife. He, she gave him oh, nothing. Lord. Oh, my gosh. Gave him nothing. Uh, what is that? Uh, um, it gives me a headache <laughs> just trying to figure it out. And Danwell Frey, that's the Watts Walder Frey's ninth son who had a Wentz wife. Uh-huh. Also, no kids. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, with uh, Winifrey? Winifrey, yeah. Went? I guess Winifrey went, yeah. Um, oh, Oh damn! Maybe they really were. Yeah, it's really the evidence is mounting. <laughs> um, so there was another important. There was an important tournament there that we'll discuss at a later date in more detail. Uh, a lot, some of it's a bit spoilery, but it was in 281, uh-huh. which is right before Robert's Rebellion. Uh, a little ways before Robert's Rebellion. Yeah. Um, I actually think the yeah. tournament. This day of the tournament is off. I actually think it was probably more like 280, but that's that's a, that's uh, we don't really need to get into that. But for you, uh, for the for the true detail-oriented people, uh, that's that's my thought there. You'll know what I mean. They'll know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. It was, of course, it was just called the tournament at Harrenhal now, but uh, just for lack of a better name. But Lady went. Um, one of the significance uh, uh, of it was that there were four sons of uh, of Lord Went that he was showing off. Um, and a daughter, and the four sons, you know, in tournament style, they started off as the four champions of the lady, the the, the queen of love and beauty. Um, but what happened to those four sons? We don't. I assume they died during Robert's Rebellion. I don't know. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know their names right. even. The daughter, she was married off, and she didn't have any kids. That this is this might be the daughter, the Frey daughter that we're talking about. I'm not sure about that, but mm-hmm. but uh, nothing happened there. So. Lady Went, poor Lady Went, who is the wife of the Lord Went, who held this Terran Hal tournament, and she was the mother of these four sons and his daughter. She's the only one alive at the start of the series. And since this is not a spoiler episode, we will not describe what, what's, what's happened past the Storm of Swords, but at the time of the Storm of Swords, she's still alive, but she's in ex- sort of in exile. Not in exile from Westeros, but she left Harrenhal because she couldn't defend it. She didn't have enough men to defend it. Uh, it sounds like she's kind of a ghost herself. She's just a really, really sad, tragic figure. All her family's dead, and she's got nothing to really got not doesn't have a lot to live for. So she she left in advance of Tywin. Tywin took Harrenhal for a while during the War of the Five Kings, and she left um, to avoid that. She didn't want to be captured by Tywin. So she has no heirs. So even if you know, even if she gets her castle back, there's she's it's got no one to go to. The the, the crown will have to decide where it goes, and of course. That's a trick because, well, who's got the crown? <laughs> um, yeah. We know that it briefly went to Jano's slint. Oh, no. Hell no. no Very no, briefly. No, 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 no. But thank you, Tyrion. He stripped Slint of that title, sent him to the wall, and made sure his made sure it didn't stay in his family. Slint's sons, they got something. They got a booby prize. They got given knighthoods and lesser title, that lesser land. Ah, uh, but still, oh my God, Jano Slint. But, of but all Slint people. was sent to the wall where he belongs, oh. and 
Yeah, yeah, he does. And Heron Hall was instead given to Littlefinger, who never set foot in the castle. He, you know, um, instead sent Len off to the Vale. But in between that, um, uh, um, one thing real quick. Yeah. Slint needs to be on the other side of the <laughs> Let's have him come. I don't. Let's have him get. Let's have him I, die and turn into a zombie, and then they can be killed again. Exactly. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't want him. You know, we'll put him up there in the north. I mean, far north. I want him. I, I want him. Make him a make him a slintsicle. Oh yeah, exactly. All right, he is totally worthless. Just a so a stupid, arrogant little. Anyway, so go ahead. No, no, that's that's all good. I love. I am all with you on Janice Slint bashing. That is that is very deserved. He is, he's oh. up there with, he's up there with Joffrey as far as like how e- how oh. easy it is to hate him. You just like, does he have any redeeming quality? <laughs> no. And it's like, no, no not really. No. I can't think of one. No, um, no, no. sorry, yeah, I got nothing. So. Sorry. But in between, so Littlefinger's got granted the title by the Lannisters and by the actual Iron Throne, uh, but Roose Bolton and Vargo Hote had it kind of in between. Now that's a that's uh, a situation that worked out kind of funny. Vargo Hote, of course, isn't in the show at all. They replaced him with Locke, and Locke is just Locke. a guy, really. Locke is doesn't have any. Locke didn't have. See, see, Vargo Hote had an, actually had a political motivation for chopping off Jamie's hand. Um, Locke just kind of did it as a as a lark. He just wanted to do it. He just liked. He just yeah. hated, doesn't like Jamie. Had just like hated Jamie. You know, thought of him as an arrogant, snobby, had, you know, rich kid, and wanted to. And I, to be honest, I, I I was a little disappointed in that part. Yeah, they th- there was because because if you if you're show watchers, if you do go, I hope you all re- who watch the show, I hope you go back and read the books one day. You'll see that there's actually. A, is actually a very reason, yeah. a set of very subtle reasons, several reasons that are very interesting. Uh, that I can kind of understand why the show couldn't get into them because even though they're very interesting, they don't really have that much to do with the main plot. They really have a lot to do with Vargo Hote, Roose Bolton, and a bit to do with Tywin Lannister. But um, yeah. not specifically Tywin Lannister, but specifically what Tywin Lannister will do, what his reaction will be, not so much what you know him being involved with the decision or anything like that. So. Uh, it would be a bit too much of a tangent to describe all of that and why it was why all the intricacies of Hoach's decision. But let's just say it's a pretty big deal, and it's not so simple as "Hey, I want to cut his arm off," which it's really easy to see that because Vargo Hoach does like just cutting people's hands and feet off. So it's really easy to dismiss yeah. that as well. He just did that to Jamie too. But when Roose Bolton is having dinner with Jamie and Brienne. In the show, they don't talk about it. They talk about the other factors and how he, how Bolton doesn't want to be blamed for it. Well, that's part of it. Ru- Hote actually wanted to make sure that Roose Bolton was blamed yeah. for it. He wanted to make sure that, that what he did was tied to Bolton because he was afraid of being left out in the dark because he had already switched sides and he was afraid of Tywin getting revenge on him. But he was also too stupid to abandon Harrenhal. <laughs> so, needless oh, yeah. to say, uh, Vargo Hote suffers the curse of Harrenhal, kind of like the others, but anyway. Let's get back to Aegon the Conqueror. We're getting close to the end of this episode here. We're, we're going to be wrapping things up soon and, and yep. uh, um, closing it out and, and getting prepared for the next episode, but we want to get yep. back to Aegon the Conqueror for a minute because this is, this is how we're... Uh, this, is, this is our, our, our kind of closing point, our, our division point. 
Um, at the beginning of Aegon's time period as a ruler seemed like a natural split for us. So Aegon went ahead and repartitioned the Riverlands and the Iron Islands. As we said, they were all under the control of the Iron Islands at the point at which he came into the picture. But he split them back up. He, you know, of course we talked a bit about the, our vague notions of how the Riverlands were sent back. Um... This is interesting, actually. There's, a, there's an interesting tidbit here. I remember I talked about Edmund Tully and how he must have done something. Re- remember, the River River Run was never... We talked about all the houses that ruled the Riverlands in the past. House Mud, House Blackwood, the, the Seat of Old Stones. Um, all those houses. Notice that House Tully was never one of them. House Tully, And that's no accident. We didn't leave them out because we were saving them for later. They were not... A huge deal back in then. They were never. They weren't. They were important, but never a top player that we know of. Maybe they were number two. Maybe they were number three. But they were not number one at any point back then. Yeah, they they were probably lords or something. But they, yeah, they definitely. But they certainly did. They certainly handled this situation in in a manner that uh, enabled them to elevate their status. Now, here's why it's particularly interesting. Remember, we talked about House Coharis, which is that clearly non-Westerosi name, probably mm-hmm. came along with Aegon, probably Valyrian, or uh, uh, certainly, uh, certainly not Westerosi. So why did Edmund Tully get overlordship? Why did Edmund Tully, a guy uh, from a house that's never ruled the Riverlands, how did he get put in charge over, say, Lord Coharis, who had a bigger castle and a more central location? How did that guy got net, get not get overlordship of the Riverlands, despite his most likely closer relationship with Aegon? Probably because Edmund Tully did something really, really important. He probably was big in driving the... In, uh, my best guess is that he helped drive the Iron Islanders out of the Riverlands. He was instrumental in that. And took a lot of the work off of Aegon's plate. He did his king a great service. Uh, also because it sounds like he did it early in the game. He switched sides early on. So Aegon, you know, had a lot of reason to c- could count on him. So I think that's uh I think that's interesting. The the fact that the Tullys were set ahead of the uh, not uh, that River Run and the Tullys were set over House Coharis and Harrenhal. Um so hopefully we maybe find that out. Yeah, about I, later. I, um, um, in case you, you know, you're unfamiliar with our podcast um, or you're new to our podcast, a Lord Paramount is a lord who actually rules a kingdom. Um, in the king's name. So just imagine like uh, being like a governor in a state that you rule under, say, the president's name here in the United States right. anyways. Um, but you have a lot more authority than a governor mm-hmm. would. So, so Eric, for example, is uh, Ned Stark. He was Lord Paramount of the North. Now, this is not to be confused with, say, the Wardens. Um, there are four of them. They get the North, South, East, and West. Um, they don't have to be Lords, apparently. Well, a perfect example is King Robert, uh, Robert Baratheon, actually threatened to name Jamie Lannister Warden of the East at one point. Uh, yeah, so House Tully were never, like we said before, they were never kings, um, but they, they did have the Castle of Riverrun for a long time, and you know they, their lands are pretty pretty rich, so in, in the figuring out of what their exact position was uh, before becoming Lords Paramount, they, they clearly were in a pretty good spot. You didn't just go from you know nobody to Lord Paramount. Um, mm-hmm. We know uh, Riverrun must have been built prior to this era because it's said that they'd held it for a thousand years or so. 
Um, but we don't know a whole lot about its history other than the, the cool defensive features it has. It's not particularly large, we know that, but it is interesting. It's, it's kind of unique in its, sense, its own way. And they have, a, they have a pretty large army at the time, at the beginning of the War of the Five Kings, even though Tywin is doing a good job of keeping the River Lords kind of locked in their own lands. That was what he was doing with his sending Gregor out to, to Reeve. Not only was he trying to draw Ned Stark out to ambush him, um, but which mm-hmm. failed because Ned his leg was messed up, but uh, he was trying to keep the Riverlands uh, paranoid uh, needing to defend their own lands uh, Gregor is out there raping and burning uh, so it was hard, the, the lords are, are, are hesitant to go meet join their forces up to the Tullys because if they go up to meet the Tullys and, and send their army up there, they expose their own lands to be despoiled uh, by these basically terroristic mm-hmm. actions um, of Tywin's men so one of the really cool things that happened recently um, in the show that we get to see a close-up view of, and in the book they go into a lot of detail, is these um, funeral customs of the Tullys. That's kind of neat. Yeah, uh, yeah, we actually learned about some interesting uh, uh, of their funeral customs. So seven men are actually chosen to push a funeral boat into the river. And uh, these seven men are meant to represent the, well, the faith of the seven. Exactly. You know. So the boat drifts down the Red Fork, and it's supposed to be, you know, burning and going into the rising sun. So traditionally, the heir to the throne, or to the seat, I should say, shoots a flaming arrow to light the boat. Um, sometimes that lord might need a little <laughs> help from their... Slightly flaming black uncle. <laughs> so, um, but it's very, very similar to Viking. Yeah, customs. yeah, Viking funeral customs. It does. It totally reminds me of that. Um, another lord, by the way, who probably didn't shoot the flaming arrow himself was probably that eight-year-old kid we mentioned that was in charge back when uh, the Brackens and Blackwoods were out each other's throats because of Otho Bracken. <laughs> he probably needed a little help too. I don't. I don't suppose eight-year-olds are drawing bows too often. Um, but really, the, the most of the detail we have about House Tully is during the last several hundred years. They're, they're playing a big part uh, in a lot of the wars and a lot of the, the important events that come uh, that we're going to get into in the next episode of the History of Westeros podcast. Things such as the War of the Five Kings, the Blackfire Rebellions, the Magor's War Against the Faith, um... The, wow. the yeah, Dance of the one. Dragons, Robert's Rebellion, of course. So this is where we're gonna we're gonna cut it off for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening, oh, yeah. folks. We got I know we put a lot in there, and we've got a lot more to go. So I hope you enjoyed the the first installment of our history of the Riverlands. We know it was a long time coming. Uh, sorry about that, but uh, appreciate all the kind words. Uh, people were asking, "Hey, when's the next episode coming out?" Hey, we're really looking forward to it. You know. Some people also, you know, pointed out that we're worth the wait, so thanks for that. Um, yes, thank you very so much. So we will uh, go ahead and uh, tie that up. Props to uh, everyone listening. Thanks a lot for supporting us, for liking us on Facebook, following us on yes, Twitter, very much. Um, for YouTube as well. And thanks to all of our yes. sources. Thank you very much. Uh, Tower of the Hand, uh, Westeros.org, uh, Ran, you know. Yeah. All oh, those guys, oh, yes, uh, yes, Matt yes. from uh, Podcast Winterfell, and oh yeah, uh, all the people that I'm forgetting. 
Yeah, and, and, uh, well, and, and once again, thank you very much for listening to History of Western Podcast. Um, again, this is a podcast dedicated to the Song of Ice and Fire series by George R. R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones on HBO. 